Hey, welcome to Socialism for All. This is S4A live stream number 87 being recorded on Wednesday, March 15, 2023. We do normally record these things live, uh, 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern. Of course, we're starting a little after that. We wait for the <clears throat> chat to fill up and all that. We've got about 50 people here with us in the chat for a regular Wednesday thing. This is what we're doing right now. We'll go for maybe about an hour and a half, take like a one minute break, and then uh, go for another hour and a half or so, something like that. We will see uh, how things turn out. So what's new this week? What's to be expected in the stream? Well, we'll do a little bit of uh, what's new on the channel, some current events catch up, just a few things that happened this week of note. We'll see what the chat has to say about it. Uh, that's up front. In particular, the uh, bank failure, second biggest bank failure since 2008. That's kind of important. Um, also, quick thing about um, the Pentagon saying that a Russian fighter jet downed a U.S. drone. Uh, you know, as I cautioned people earlier, in the early stages of something like that, you only know what they want you to know, so really don't jump to any conclusions just yet. Um, never take military sources, you know, at face value straight off. That, that is not a good idea. Uh, also, it's Long COVID Awareness Day. Let's try that again. Long COVID Awareness Day. So we're going to read a couple articles about that. I am preparing a longer COVID update, which I think we're going to do on a quarterly basis because I did one at New Year's, and I think maybe another one at the end of this month would be good. There's a flood of COVID research and COVID news that comes out. You know, contrary to what um, right-wingers will tell you, that it's all fake and it's all a hoax and whatever, no, it's scientifically studied. There's a ton of medical literature about it. And we know an enormous amount about this incredibly dangerous and highly contagious virus. It is airborne. It, um, you know, people infected with the most recent strain, which is coming out of um, the uh, straight... BA5s, it turned into BQ1 and BQ11. Uh, and then that got overtaken recently by XBB 1.5 and XBB 1.9.1. Anyway, somebody infected with these recent strains is likely to infect 15 to 20 other people. So that's how contagious this is. It's as contagious as any virus that we know of. So it's a horrendous uh, situation. They're not even mandating masks. And, you know, with a mandate, there's still people who don't follow it. But you need a mandate to even get, you know, 70, 80 percent compliance. And they're just, you know, recommendations. In fact, the CDC in the USA seems to be going out of their way, uh, not to mention masks when it would be relevant to do so. You know, talking about coughing into your sleeve and stuff like that. Um, oh, how about I took this thing off the mic? Hold on. Okay, if it suddenly sounds, I don't know if that made a big difference. I actually had something, um, there was like a piece of paper that was <laughs> blocking the mic partially. I don't know if suddenly it sounds like the, the clouds have parted, but um, <laughs> the mic is the way it's supposed to be now. Anyway, um, <clears throat> yeah, the big thing that uh, right-wingers say whenever long COVID is mentioned now, the big talking point is, oh, it's a vaccine side effect. Okay, very clever, except it was a recognized condition prior to the vaccine. So what now, you fucking moron? Okay, but you'll see this uniformly everywhere. So we'll read a couple of articles about long COVID. However, this won't be a full-on 
COVID update. We're going to do that separately in a multi-part video uh, later in the month or beginning of April. Um, on the other side of the break, we and of course there's going to be a lot of chat as well. Um, on the other side of the break, we have two articles about China, the international role of China from the KKE, the Greek Communist Party, and um, Capitalism with Chinese Characteristics from Rotefront, which is a Russian uh, left communist labor uh, organization consisting. Well, there's involvement of multiple parties. We'll, we'll cover that later. But anyway, two articles, one from 2010, one from 2020, that are you know a bit more critical and skeptical um, than than some of you know China's uh, commitment to building socialism um, you know versus of course restoring capitalism and is that already out of control anyway we'll look at two articles there and in fact I have a third article that we'll be doing soon on the channel it's longer so I'm not going to do it in a live stream. I'm going to do it separately and then upload that. But uh, that will be William Hinton's The Great Reversal, Privatization of China, 1979 to 1989. So three pieces there to be, two of them done today and the third to be done in the next week. So that is what's coming up in live stream 87. And of course, I really don't want to underplay lots and lots of chat. Um, you know, the people who show up in the chat help to make this what it is and keep that discussion rolling, and it's intelligent and a good time. Uh, speaking of contributors, thanks to the patrons whose names are on the screen. This is um, outdated slightly, so there's a couple people whose names aren't uh, on this yet, but thanks to the patrons, patreon.com slash socialismforall. If you like this channel, thank me, but also thank a patron, because I wouldn't be able to spend nearly as much time on this without the support of the patrons. It's encouraging, and it's also time that I don't have to spend rustling up dollars, you know, doing wage work. Um, so I can just devote it to, you know, reading the stories and uh, doing the analysis and prepping for the shows and all the things that we do here. So that is very much appreciated. Thanks to the patrons. All right, so let's go ahead and start with the, uh, let's start with the first half of the show. So, um, current events, um, what do we have new on the channel? And then we'll check in with the chat after uh, a couple things related to that. So, new on the channel is, I put up kind of just a fun, you know, whenever I, I see a movie or remember a movie that has some scene kind of related to socialism or something like that, and it's kind of amusing, I may clip it and put it up on the channel. We did this a while ago with the John Candy Becomes a Communist clip from a fairly obscure Tom Hanks movie from, I think, 1983 called Volunteers, um, where they Hanks and Candy play uh, U.S. Peace Corps volunteers, and uh, they're down in Southeast Asia, and they're trying to build a bridge for a village. And anyway, there's uh, interaction with the Red Army. Um, so... Anyway, that, that, I like that clip a lot, uh, but basically no one's seen that. And then we put up one from License to Drive, a uh, cheesy 80s movie with Corey Haim, and uh, about patriotic consumerism. It, it's 28 seconds long. Watch it if you haven't already. Otherwise, as far as readings, we have been knocking uh, chapter by chapter at Anti-During Part 1, which is the 20th installment 
I believe out of 26 or 27, in the Basic Marxism-Leninism Study Guide video playlist. We are almost done. There are two more chapters and then the conclusion, which is really just like three long paragraphs. So there's about another hour left in it. I'll be finishing that up, if not tomorrow, I think by, um, by the weekend, definitely. And then, yay, anti-during is done. Well, at least part one. There are three parts. We did part three. Because the basic Marxism-Leninism uh, study guide playlist is broken up into topics. So they talk about politics, philosophy, and economics separately. And anti-during... Um, anyway, we covered part three first, then part one, then we're going to do part two after that. It does appear later in the playlist. But when we're done with this, we're going to do Ludwig Feuerbach and the End of History, um, or what, whatever the title of that is. Anyway, um, then Theses on Feuerbach, which I attempted to do before because it looked short. And uh, honestly, if you haven't read uh, the, uh, the, the longer work, the theses make absolutely no sense. You won't know what uh, Marx is talking about at all. So we're going to do that. Then the much-requested Value, Price, and Profit, um, I believe, is right after that. And then after that is Capital. But before we get to Capital, like I'm probably going to do those three in a row. Uh, there's a couple of other readings I'll be sprinkling in. But before we get to Capital, we're going to do a couple of other things. Then we will come back and do Capital, Volume 1, Das Kapital, chapter by chapter. There's a lot of chapters, more than two dozen chapters. Each one is like an hour long, and we're going to break it down as we go. And then with the other videos that we've done in parts like this, because with some of the longer ones... I mean, I get really hung up if I don't do them chapter by chapter. I like to just upload things in one chunk. Um, it, it's just better, I think, on the whole for people to find it and bookmark it and, you know, download it, whatever else. Um, I did this with Black Shirts and Reds and with Rosa Luxemburg's um, The National Question. You know, I did it in chunks of a chapter or two, and then I also uploaded them all in one chunk glued together at the end. So when Anti-During is done... When Capital is done, it will also get uploaded into one big video. Anti-During Part 1 is probably going to be like six hours long. Capital, I've seen other audiobooks of it between 10 and 11 hours. So, you know, it is lengthy. And that's not with them commenting on it. Like, I will stop and explain um, some of the concepts because I know people like that. Some people don't like that we kind of teach the material and do comment on it and try to reinforce the themes. However, you're more than welcome to upload your own audiobook without comments uh, if you would like to read that. That's just the way that we do them here. So um, for fuck's sake, you know, stop complaining. But here's a full refund. What can I tell you, you know? All right. So that's kind of what's new at the channel. I promise there are some very interesting readings coming up. I was just working on the list and I'm excited to do it. It's going to take a while. You know, people are always asking, are you going to do this audiobook? Are you going to do that audiobook? The answer is probably yes, but these things take a lot of time to do. I also already have about the next 30 audiobooks planned out, plus there will be things that pop up spontaneously in the middle of that. So planning 30 actually means more like 40 by the time they're actually done. Uh, but I plan to do this for years, and so yeah, we will get to it. It just might not be in the order that you want it to be in. Before we move on from that topic, I want to just also add, if you haven't looked at the playlists tab, uh, please do so, especially if you're new to the channel. 
There is one of the first groupings of playlists is like recommended reading lists and syllabi from different parties and things like that. Um, check those out if you're new to Marxism. There are some pretty good guides to, you know, getting the 12 or 20, 25, like really important big readings. There's ones from, well, there's the basic Marxism-Leninism study guide, which is what we started with. Of course, we branched way out from that and are now going to be finishing it more than three years uh, later with a lot of uh, other readings in between. There's Hakim's basic Marxism-Leninism recommended reading list, Hakim the YouTuber. Uh, there is the American Party of Labor recommended reading list. There's the Politsturm recommended reading list. Uh, there's the Marxist-Leninist reading hub recommended playlist. Although, and this kind of segues into the next thing, um, they just recently, it's mlreadinghub.org or .com, I think, um, they just recently updated their uh, reading list curriculum. Got to be honest, I kind of preferred the old one uh, better overall. There's a couple of readings that they took out, including Engels on Authority, which, you know, the U.S. left in particular, I think, really needs to grow out of its anarchist, petty, individualist um, consciousness phase. And On Authority is kind of like a good reading to have under your belt. I don't know why they took it out. It's not even a very long reading. I think it's like 10 minutes long. So, um, and another thing, if, if I may just add, uh, they added, so the, the ML Reading Hub curriculum is done in four stages, basically beginner, intermediate, advanced, etc. And um, they say there that, you know, the order within each stage is up to the reader. However, the order presented is the one that they suggest. But that you should really read, you know, all of one stage before moving on to the next stage. That said, they put as the fourth text in stage one a 1,000-page textbook. Why would you do that? Uh, you're going to get a lot of people getting hung up on that and then maybe not advancing on to the later readings. So, I, you know, I don't know if they have some grand plan uh, behind that, but I kind of prefer the, uh, the old reading list myself. So we'll have both up on the channel. Obviously, we're not connected with Marxist-Leninist Reading Hub. Um, I just look for good reading lists and then try to help people to read that. You know, the point of this channel is broad-based education and agitation. We're not a party. This is a YouTube channel. Um, but to get people who are moving left on the right track and, you know, get you ready to join a party. I mean, any party is going to have you kind of read, you know, you, you have to study to be a Marxist. Marxism is not an identity. It's a set of tools for understanding society, you know, doing analysis of, of history, etc. And so um, if you haven't done the studies, <clears throat> then you really can't claim to be a Marxist because you can't do the things that need to be done in terms of the analysis. You won't have those tools. You want to be uh, equipped with that understanding. So, um, you know, it's important to do that reading. We're trying to just make it as easy as possible for people either who recently joined a party to, you know, get audiobooks to reinforce their reading. Um, there's a lot of people who have trouble reading words on a page for one reason or another. Um, and the audiobooks really help them just as far as like learning styles and learning preferences. There's also uh, people who, you know, just have a long commute or they, they drive for a living, you know, so they're in, their, they're in a car or on a train for like multiple hours a day and it's a good time to listen to an audiobook. So 
anyway, you know, the channel is here to help people who are thinking about moving left and checking this thing out, trying to make these readings you need as accessible as possible. And then, you know, as far as you joining a party, um, you know, that's up to you to make that decision. But we always, you know, kind of get questions like, are you forming the S4A party? Uh, answer is no. So, you know, there would have to be major, major changes for something like that to happen. And, you know, for the foreseeable future, we're trying to do broad-based agitation and education. And, uh, you know, so anyway. Um, all right. That said, uh, that's kind of what's new on the channel. We also had a question. And so this came in before today's chat. And um, I wanted to handle it. And then we'll get into the chat next. So where's our question? Um so this weekend, um, March, is it the 18th, the Saturday, yeah, is uh, the big answer rally. There's a big left-wing coalition in the U.S. answer, act now to stop war and end racism. Uh, that's one group. It's, it shares ties to um, the PSL, Party for Socialism and Liberation. Um, Brian Becker is, who also does media stuff. Uh, is a co-founder of PSL, is also the national director of ANSWER. So ANSWER formed after 9-11 in 2001 to oppose the U.S. push to start what became known as the Global War on Terror. And they held a bunch of rallies. Um, anyway, the, the coalition behind this involves many actually left-wing groups, very much unlike that uh, Rage Against the War Machine thing that was done by the uh, crypto fascist or barely even crypto at this point fascist libertarian party uh, it's a bunch of right-wingers neo-nazis etc here's your left-wing rally that's happening this weekend so we covered this um i don't think so much in the last stream but in the two streams prior so that would have been 84 and 85 we talked about this a lot um how uh, and specifically criticizing brian becker i would really like to see somebody else that's my opinion, um, in a leadership role, as far as what I've seen of him so far, in terms of messaging on um, the Ukraine war. And we've discussed that at length. I don't want to rehash all those comments. Please do go back to live streams 84 and 85 for more discussion about that. We may have discussed it in, in 86 as well, but I think those, those are the main ones, particularly 85. So anyway, uh, I was just plugging this again as a reminder because DSA's International Caucus um, endorsed this rally. So that's good. You want everyone on the broader left sort of on the same page with things. Um, now, the title of the rally is Peace in Ukraine. The problem is um, there is a complex buildup to the Ukraine war and trying to come up with a slogan that fits is, um, you know, some of the messaging, I think, is already uh, just easy prey for the sort of pro-U.S., pro-Ukraine liberals. And I'm not even faulting a lot of them. They just genuinely don't understand. They're operating off of, you know, sort of what they've been told in the U.S. And Russia invaded Ukraine. That's a fact. Now, there was um, the, I mean, there's been a tug of war over Ukraine since 1991, for 30 years, since the USSR was politically destroyed and then the economy went with it. Um, part of Ukraine leans more toward Europe. Part of Ukraine leans more towards Russia. And you see that tug of war within the Ukraine government ever since. 
And then there's sort of a nationalist struggle that happens in Ukraine for them to sort of stand on their own feet, etc. Except that in the absence of socialism, nationalism, as it hardens into sort of ultra-nationalism, just turns into fascism, which is, of course, encouraged by capitalists who want just any notion of socialism to be completely eradicated from memory, where it can't be completely eradicated from memory. They want it to at least be stained and, you know, have concepts like uh, the USSR was responsible for World War II or Nazism and communism are equal. They want you to, you know, pave over whatever they can't erase of the memory with um, stains on the communist legacy, which, of course, we're here to try and fight that process. But anyway, uh, peace in Ukraine, you know, is this the best slogan? Uh, I would go with something really more like no war but class war, which is a long-standing recognized, um, you know, phrase, concept. There's a lot of literature, you know, sort of tied to that because, as we'll get into here, so the question was, why endorse a peace? And yeah, I spoke for about 20 minutes on how I thought that peace in Ukraine is not the best slogan. Um, but anyway, why endorse a peace? isn't the goal to support the workers' movement. How would peace between two bourgeois countries help bring about socialism? Isn't it better to advocate to turn the war into a class war, as Lenin and many other revolutionary thinkers would have advocated? Okay, good question. So, uh, and again, this is not a simple topic. It's why we've been talking about it for like an entire year, and then especially in the recent live streams. So my answer to this that I wrote, and we'll see if I have other things to add to it. Right now, a bourgeois peace is better. Uh, and a bourgeois peace, meaning a peace mediated by capitalists, is better than the slaughter of unorganized people. Because that is basically what we have now. Ideally, as communists, we want to see people organizing for socialism and you know, working towards a revolutionary moment. The question is, is this a revolutionary moment? And if it isn't, what can you do with that that is actually good for the long-term struggle here, okay? So a bourgeois peace is better than the slaughter of unorganized people, but it will, because keep in mind also the context here, this is Ukraine, which was socialist. And then they've spent the last 30 years trying to de-communize and de-Sovietize the country. Um, but the bourgeois peace will also be fragile and temporary. So socialist organizing also has to continue as quickly as possible so that something like you're saying would be more possible. Um, you don't want to just, you know, lead people, you know, if you have a handful of organized socialists, you just lead them into, um, you know, lead them to their deaths. That would not be a good thing. The real concern for right now is endorsing a peace in other words, stopping the slaughter, but without endorsing any of the bourgeois aggression that led up to this moment. So the USA and NATO have had their hand in fomenting this conflict. Russia obviously also invaded the country. So there's a lot of bourgeois aggression around. And then, of course, within Ukraine, you have political camps that are allied with one side or the other, all of which are capitalist. None of them represent the class struggle of the proletariat against the capitalists. So um, we're, we're actually pretty far from that. But we also don't want to see people, you know, killed, um, which is happening in this war, and it's a terrible thing. So we would like to see a peace if 
the best thing that we can get right now is peace mediated by capitalists rather than continued escalation and slaughter of unorganized people, then that's great. But you have to do that without sort of falling into the U.S. good or Russia good side of things. Everyone is wrong, but also we can stop this before it gets any worse. Because again, um, what we're really looking for, and going back to Lenin, you know, as Lenin and, and others would have advocated. So within a revolutionary moment, Lenin and others advocated for, uh, who, who again, were sitting on top of a much bigger organized movement at that point, um, advocated in a revolutionary moment, yes, turn imperialist war into civil war for revolution. Revolution, again, specifically, we're communists here, oriented around class struggle. Revolution is the change in the ruling class, not just change within factions of the ruling class, but change of the ruling class from capitalist to proletariat. So, yeah, within a revolutionary moment, if you have the stuff to do that and that is feasible, then do that. However, what did Lenin and other communists advocate outside of that is for the expansion of democratic rights, for more favorable conditions, for class struggle. Bourgeois war leads you in the exact opposite direction. During times of war, capitalists crack down on civil liberties. They crack down on free speech. They make class struggle more difficult. So bourgeois war is not in the interest of class struggle unless and until you've got, and, and, and I don't even want to say it's in the interest of, but the only time that you can even make something out of it as you know an organized socialist movement is when you're really big enough to flip the script on them as described and as lenin talked about in uh, the the defeat of one's own government in the imperialist war revolutionary defeatism that that is what we'd like to see but you can't pull that off without organization so again, if you're not in a revolutionary moment, what communists are looking for is the expansion of democratic rights in order to uh, facilitate class struggle. Again, bourgeois war, look at in the U.S., the Patriot Act, uh, the whatever, the uh, 2006, the Military Commissions Act, all the things that happen when capitalists go to war. They get vulnerable, and so they have to crack down on civil liberties. I think this should be a familiar concept by now, for, especially for people who've been remotely conscious in the United States in the last 20 years. Well, I guess 22 years now. So anyway, um, yeah, that's what we would advocate. Obviously, I'm not in Ukraine, so I don't want to speak uh, specifically for, uh, you know, and you have revisionist communists in Ukraine. You have non-revisionist communists in Ukraine as well. So you got to sort of filter that out. But my point is, um, ultimately, you know, it comes down to them and what they want to do. What I'm trying to just say is representing general communist principles rather than opportunist principles. Um, you don't want to be endorsing bourgeois aggression, the sort of USA good, Russia good campism, sort of picking lesser evil imperialism. Yes, Russia is a less developed imperialist. However, it's at the highest stage of capitalism. It is a budding imperialist that is trying to carve out a bigger stake of the global market, the right to exploit on the global stage, and the more established imperialists, the U.S. and the NATO bloc, don't want to give Russia uh, a bigger seat at the table. So they may have a war about it using workers 
to fight it. And they'll lie to those workers in any way that they have to, you know, foment national hatred, racial hatred, religious hatred, whatever it is, even get them, uh, get the more class conscious among them. But those who are still um, susceptible to revisionism easily, uh, they'll even give them a line that they're, you know, anti-imperialist um, or something like that. We have to, you know, fight against all of that ideologically and in our organizing. So anyway, I don't know exactly what Answer's position is. I think we'll see, obviously, more at the rally what they end up saying. Uh, but Becker has demonstrated more of that sort of Russia good kind of thing. And uh, when I was saying before that, you know, a lot of liberals looking at this are confused. Now, liberals are always going to be confused to a certain extent. But when they say peace in Ukraine, but you're not condemning Russia, how the fuck does that work? And to be honest, I, you know, I mean, you can understand why they're confused without listening to this sort of, um, you know, mind bending uh, opportunism. So anyway, I hope that that is clear. Um, what we want is a revolution that is as peaceful as possible. However, that's easier said than done. In the meantime, you have capitalists fighting with each other over territory, over the right to exploit. And we want that. I mean, capitalism is not good for workers. Capitalist war is even worse for workers. So we want it to stop. We want the capitalists to make nice again. And at least, um, you know, go back to extracting surplus uh, value through labor rather than flat out murdering people. That would be a good de-escalation. And again, we want to pursue the optimal conditions for class struggle, which in line with Lenin is maximization of democratic rights and freedoms to the extent that you can get that. At some point, you just have to wage the class struggle that you can with the conditions that you're granted. Okay, but the idea is um, when conditions are going in the direction of fewer democratic rights, fewer civil liberties, that does not help your class struggle, it hurts it. All right, so that is some of the basic thinking there. Now, um, that said, that's sort of some channel-related stuff for right now. Let's get into the chat, and uh, whoops, that's, that's the screen we usually show people while the stream is uh, warming up. There's the real screen. All right, let's get into the chat. How is everyone doing today? How is everyone doing? How much do you all want to bet that the stock market crash will happen in 2033? I don't know if that's a typo, but um, I'm kind of thinking it's going to be more like this year, 2023. Um, read an article recently saying how banks have over $600 billion unaccounted for after the closing of the Silicon Valley Bank, not including the Silicon Valley Bank. Yeah, um, you know, it's the second biggest bank collapse since 2008. Uh, this is on the heels of the Sam Bankman-Fried debacle a few months ago that took a lot of money with it. Um, so there's this, you know, banking contagion concept because banks um, invest in each other, etc. When one goes down, it can affect uh, the status of the other banks and things like that. Now, if you look up, there's a Wikipedia page uh, somebody was using as a um, reference. It is the list of bank failures in the United States, 2008 to present. There are things on that list that are bigger than this. So there's one, uh, well, that was 2008, IndyMac, $32 billion. Um, 
another one. Washington Mutual Bank, $307 billion, and so on. Um, there are things since then that are bigger than the Silicon Valley Bank, but some of them are more like sort of real estate firms, or it's hard to say sometimes which which of these are banks as we sort of understand them and which were just sort of um, handling large amounts of money and assets in a way that a bank does. But anyway, there's, so there may be some things on that list you might not think of as a bank. Anyway, the consensus uniformly is this, this is the second biggest bank failure since 2008. So the Biden administration so far and the Federal Reserve under Biden is stepping in swiftly to try to contain this because one of the problems is let's say you're a big company that has a lot of employees and you can't get any of your money that was in that bank and then you have expenses to meet for the next week uh, including but not limited to payroll well then you have a liquidity problem you don't have cash on hand to be you know um, paying around you still have assets you still own things that are valuable but you don't have that cash to like meet payroll and you can't you know pay your um employees and like real estate or something like that so the federal reserve um announced a few two days ago i think this was let me pull up the screen here and i just lost my twitch tab again too many tabs let me tell you but you get a little bit of uh that clickiness that people like that's why okay all right, now where did I stick the Federal Reserve statement? It's short. We'll read the, the thing here. <clears throat> it's just two screens. So this is from the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. Uh, March 12, Federal Reserve Board announces it will make additional funding to eligible depository institutions to help assure that banks have the ability to meet the needs of all their depositors. So this was released 6.15 p.m. Eastern, so really after the end of the business day on the 12th. Um, so this has really just been in effect for a few days now, the 13th, 14th, and, and today. So it reads, To support American businesses and households, the Federal Reserve Board on Sunday announced that it will make additional funding available to eligible depository institutions to help assure that banks have the ability to meet the needs of all their depositors. This action will bolster the capacity of the banking system to safeguard deposits and ensure the ongoing provision of money and credit to the economy. The Federal Reserve is prepared to address any liquidity pressures that may arise. The additional funding will be made available through the creation of a new creation of a new bank term funding program, BTFP, offering loans of up to one year in length to banks, saving associ savings associations, credit unions, and other eligible depository institutions, pledging U.S. Treasuries, agency debt and mortgage-backed securities, and other qualifying assets as collateral. These assets will be valued at par. The BTFP will be an additional source of liquidity against high-quality securities, eliminating an institution's need to quickly sell those securities in times of stress. So note, they're including mortgage-backed securities, it sounds like, as high-quality securities. Uh, I feel like we've seen this movie before, but let's continue. With approval of the Treasury Secretary, the Department of the Treasury will make available up to $25 billion from the Exchange Stabilization Fund as a backstop for the BTFP. Federal Reserve does not anticipate that it will be necessary to draw on these backstop funds. So we'll see. Uh, they think they can handle it without. If they start dipping into that, 
that may be sort of cause for concern, but let's continue. After receiving a recommendation from the boards of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC, and the Federal Reserve, Treasury Secretary Yellen, after uh, consultation with the president, approved actions to enable the FDIC to complete its resolutions of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank in a manner that fully protects all depositors, both insured and uninsured. These actions will reduce stress across the financial system, support financial stability, and minimize any impact on businesses, households, taxpayers, and the broader economy. So let's just pause there. There's a little bit left. But FDIC, so this is a thing where um, when you deposit money into an FDIC-covered uh, institution, your deposit is insured up to a certain amount, so $250,000. And if that is lost for some reason, again, it's insured, so we know what insurance means. What they seem to be doing in this case is um, stepping in for things well in excess of that amount, from what I gathered. I have not um, done extensive reading on this so far, which is why people are calling it a bailout, because it's really, uh, it's above the sort of um, pre-existing agreed-upon terms. In other words, the um, you know rules of the game that Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and the uh, large institutions depositing funds in them um, you know, when they were assessing the risk of making those deposits, <clears throat> um, they were considering a certain set of rules. It appears, as far as my understanding, that they are going to be covering basically everything, all of the fallout. And why are they doing that? Well, to try to prevent another 2008, to pr try to prevent a domino effect of like this money, you know, this sort of financial sinkhole opened. And it took a bunch of money with it, but and so will that loss of the liquidity uh, and possibly just even beyond just you know the, um, well anyway will the loss of that um, take down other companies? Will you get this domino effect where the sinkhole keeps expanding? They desperately don't want that to happen. Now, what do we want to see as proletarians? People just trying to get up in the morning or get up in the afternoon or get up in the at the night and you know whatever shift you're on first second or third um and do our thing and survive and pay our bills and try to have some decent quality of life maybe raise a family whatever it is take care of ourselves and our loved ones we want stability as well that's why we're pushing for socialism we need to get rid of the market anarchy the rising and falling the unplanned and basically unstable nature of capitalism. We want to see that go. However, what they're doing here is they're trying to achieve a stability, um, but keeping capital front and center, which is, I don't know how long they're going to be able to keep doing this. Because, I mean, that as a proposition has so many deep contradictions in it. I'm not prepared to sort of unravel them all right now. You sort of need big diagram to do that. But um, the, uh, the idea is they're trying to make a system with violent contradictions contained within it stable. And so they're doing some crazy, you know, MacGyvering with duct tape and bubble gum here. Um, so it's like, yeah, FDIC is great. Why don't we just on the fly completely expand that to just here, we'll just give money to everybody who lost money in this um, failure of the system.
So is it still capitalism? Yes, it's still capitalism, but they're playing by rules that are kind of unprecedented at this point. And it's unclear how far they're going to be able to take this. So I think people are concerned that they're just prolonging whatever crash is coming. Um, you know, they're just trying to get one more set of quarterly profits out of it, maybe two. But it's not going to basically resolve the fundamental contradictions at the heart of the system. Only socialism can do that. Only the abolition of the capitalist system can do that. And the, none of the people, not Joe Biden, that the right, you know, confused, head-on backwards right wing is calling socialist or something like that. Joe Biden is not a fucking socialist. If you think that, seriously, just, you know, put a brick through your TV screen and, I don't know, like, just, you, you have been misled. I don't know what to tell you. Joe Biden is not a socialist. What they're doing is not socialism. It is trying to keep capitalism afloat, in fact, well past its sell-by date. So you can't have capitalism and stability, not for very long. I mean, this was sort of in the social democratic years after the crash of 1929 and the Great Depression that followed. You know, they got into Keynesian economics rather than the just sort of, uh, you know, rise and fall um, with no... Uh, shocks or padding that had come before and that really wasn't good for proletarians either because we would be thrown out of work and you know that instability was passed down onto us as well okay so they're buying some temporary stability but for how long all right let's continue the board is carefully monitoring developments in financial markets i'm sure they are the capital and liquidity positions of the u.s banking system are strong you know Nothing, I think, inspires less confidence than them having to say that straight out when that is no longer a given. When they have to repeat it to, like, make you believe it, to convince you of it, that's a bad sign. The capital and liquidity... Because they, they were saying this right before 2008 as well. They will fucking just lie to you literally while it's happening. While it's happening. They'll be, like, cutting your arm off with a chainsaw. And they'll be like, your arm has never been better. That's what they will do. Anyway, the capital and liquidity positions of the U.S. banking system are strong. Read, not strong. And the U.S. financial system is resilient. Read, hanging by a thread. Depository institutions may obtain liquidity against a wide range of collateral through the discount window, which remains open and available. In addition, the discount window will apply the same margins used for the securities eligible for the BTFP, further increasing lendable value at the window. So they're really trying to hand out money as fast as possible to keep the system going. Um, you know, it's, I, I guess, I'm not sure if it's a perfect analogy, but if someone loses a foot and blood is just sort of pouring out of the uh, stump down at the ankle, and you're just trying to like infuse more blood like through an IV, you know, how long can that go for? Anyway, um, the board is closely monitoring conditions across the financial system and is prepared to use its full range of tools to support households and businesses and will take additional steps as appropriate. And that's the end of that article. So uh, curious to hear what people say uh, here in the chat, because again, haven't been following it super closely uh, this week, just caught things here and there. All right. All right, so what else is going on in the chat? Hey, hopefully your week was kind to you. 
Yeah, I mean, I've had worse. Um, not not too bad. Not too bad. Daylight savings, right? So you can't argue with daylight savings. Let's see. Our homework is the audiobooks. That is correct. You know, and again, it's like, I know some people might be waiting for the entirety of Anti-During to uh, be uploaded before they begin it. As for right now, it's getting about 200 views per chapter, whereas the streams get, you know, 1,500. You have to study. If you don't do the reading, you're not going to, you just, you can't call yourself a Marxist if you don't have that background. You know, so people really do have to do the reading. I'm never fully expecting the audiobooks to have, you know, quite as many views as the current event stuff, but the ratio is pretty sad. I'm still shocked there's not a massive U.S. worker strike. I don't know what it'll take. I really don't. Um, replace U.S. worker strike with international revolution, and you're correct. Obviously, America's collapsing, but many act like there isn't one. I mean, people are, I think, have adopted a very subservient, submissive mindset towards the system and towards their fate in it. Um, obviously, we as communists have not. We're prepared to fight and criticize and challenge power. Um, but the masses make history. We're here to advise, educate, raise class consciousness. If that class consciousness, you know, is resisted, yeah, and this is why, you know, then then history doesn't move, and that's the situation that we're in currently. Uh, in the last stream, we covered the stages of change. So, just as a um, brief recap. I thought that this was useful. This is something that is understood in psychology, that when people are faced with a problem, um, they go through a number of stages in considering whether they want to change or not. Change is one of the most you know, difficult things in life for people. Uh, you really need social support to go through a change easily. But anyway, we covered the stages of change as pre-contemplation, not yet acknowledging that there is a problem that needs to be changed to contemplation, which is acknowledging that there is a problem, but you're not yet ready to face it, you're not sure that you want to face it, or you lack the confidence to face it and make a change. Three is preparation and determination. It's getting ready to actually make the change. And we likened that to starting to do the reading, joining a party, you know, proletarian party, and starting to fight for working class interests. Five, uh, four being action and willpower, changing the behavior. That's going out there, engaging in revolutionary behavior. Uh, finally, maintenance, maintaining the behavior change. After you have made that change in society, uh, building socialism and making the revolution permanent. Now, in the comments, somebody uh, added that we should also add in the stages of grief. And so this is uh, developed by Kubler-Ross and, uh, again, well-known within psychology there's some people put it at seven stages. Anyway, we'll do the five stages of grief as denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and then finally acceptance. And I would say that that's um, the stages of grief. If we're looking at the stages of change as sort of the um, the the meta model of the overall uh, encounter with the need for change, I think the stages of grief are basically. Well, denial happens 
in pre-contemplation. You're denying that there is a problem. Anger uh, is maybe the sort of borderline between the pre-contemplation and the contemplation. Then in the contemplation, it's like the the still some of that anger, the bargaining, the depression. And then finally, the acceptance is just like, look, I got to do something. And that's when you move from stage two, pre-contemplation to stage three. Um, so, which is preparation. So, yeah, I mean, if you're trying to fit in the five stages of grief into the stages of change, primarily in stages one and two there. So I just, anyway, I thought that was a good contribution. I wanted to uh, work that in. COVID is the third leading cause of death in the U.S., Yes, it sure is. Well, and then if you look at the other leading, last year it was the second leading cause of death. And then the first leading cause of death was heart disease. COVID also weakens your heart. So we'll get into this a little bit more on the long COVID awareness stuff. But, you know, I think that there's a lot of people out there who think that getting COVID is like some badge of honor, that you're getting it over with and it's making you stronger to get over it. Nothing could be free. Would you think the same thing about HIV? Okay, so clearly, you know, that doesn't apply to sort of all diseases. Yes, it's true. When you're a child, um, you get exposed to a lot of relatively harmless viruses that make you sick, that don't make adults sick because your immune system is naive. It hasn't been exposed to them. And yeah, it'll give kids a runny nose or whatever. Then you develop the immunity and then you kind of never catch it again. COVID, SARS coronavirus 2, is not like that. Same way that we don't get HIV to just sort of, you know, whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger kind of thing. SARS coronavirus 2 is more like that than it's like the flu. It does not make you stronger. It makes you weaker. Every time you get it, it ups your odds of hospitalization, heart attack, stroke, clotting, mental impairment, all kinds of things. And you will keep getting reinfected. So we see people getting reinfected after just a few weeks now. You have to stop the spread. That means masking with an N95 or a P100, KN95, some serious respirator, not just a cloth mask, and not just a surgical mask, but a respirator, an N95, something that is rated um, for you know medical activity. That's important. It's critical. You have to just not catch the thing. It's like HIV. You don't catch HIV to, like, get, you know, strengthen your immune system. That's not how it works. It's not how it works with SARS coronavirus 2 either. Every time you catch it, you are upping your odds. Let me see, actually, if I have the graphic here. But every time you catch it, you are, um, yeah, so here's this sort of humorous um, COVID-19 reinfection loyalty card 2.0. This is on all the... Um, well, this is from a little while ago, so it only goes up to BA5. But there you go. Uh, you know, punch the card every time that you uh, catch one. Um, this is a graph, and there's another graph, um, that shows with one infection, that's the green line, your risk of starting at the top, hospitalization. Then after two infections, it doubles. Then after three or more infections, it goes up more than that. And so on with cardiovascular symptoms, coagulation, that would be clotting, diabetes, your risk of developing diabetes as a consequence of COVID goes up with each reinfection, fatigue, and we're talking about crippling fatigue that completely impairs people's lives, sometimes to the point of they can't work anymore, 
gastrointestinal problems, kidney failure, mental health impairment, musculoskeletal problems, neurological problems, and lung problems. It goes up in every single case the more infections you get. I think I have another one on this as well. Uh, yeah. So this is from Acute and Post-Acute Sequelae Associated with sars coronavirus 2 Reinfection, published 10th of November 2022, so just a few months ago. You can see number of infections per individual. You get one infection, okay, your risk of all of these potentially catastrophic health uh, scenarios increases. Then what happens with your first reinfection or your second overall infection? Boom, they jump up dramatically. How about your third infection or your second reinfection? Hospitalization goes way up. You know, so you go from eight, risk factor of eight, uh, which previously was a risk factor of two. So this is bad. Every time that you get COVID, it is upping your odds of suffering a catastrophic health event like a stroke, like a heart attack, or something impairing like crippling fatigue. So by the time you're on your fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh infection, you're punching that loyalty card. And the next time you punch it could be your ticket to five weeks later, you get a heart attack. You don't want that. So yeah, getting COVID makes you weaker, not stronger. There's so much evidence supporting this. I mean, we, we've covered it a lot um, on the channel so far. All right. So yes, good point. Giannis Varoufakis got jumped in a restaurant, clearly an attempt to scare a sock them from running. I mean, you know, there's a guy who, I don't know why people listen to him anymore, because his uh, movement got into power to do one specific thing, and they didn't do it. So, yeah, I don't know. So people are saying that the audio is skipping and repeating. I'm not sure why. It's coming through clear on my end. Hopefully that clears up for you. What were the biggest lessons reading anti-during? Uh, one of them. So in German, um, that U with the umla, the two dots, um, it's really somewhere in between a U and an E. So it's like, it's probably more like it gets anglicized as during, like D-E-E. -E. Um, my biggest lesson is I kept trying to set a pronunciation, which as I often do with the European languages, non-English European languages that pop up. Um, I try to at least pay, uh, some nod while still reading, obviously in an American accent, paying some nod to how the things are actually pronounced. Um, every single time I said that word and Engels repeated it a lot. Um, it, it came out slightly differently, no matter how I, I kept swinging for just dead center on the idea that I had. And uh, it, it kept coming. Anyway, that was obviously not the biggest Marxist lesson, but that was one of the things that I continue to um, struggle with. Anyway, um, biggest lessons, it's really things here and there. Um, you know, one that uh, Deering's work even got that popular is kind of frightening where Engels, you know, had to write this whole, um, treatise against it. Um, I, I can't say it's one of my favorite readings. It's really like I get lessons here and there. I'd be hard pressed at this point 
to sort of give you one chunk that I haven't already read um, somewhere else. I did really like the stuff about cosmology that um, is just sort of, sort of interesting to me. Uh, I'm not a physicist, but I sort of, I do read about it. And uh, it's kind of fascinating to me to just sort of ponder some of that stuff. So I, I liked getting into that. It's really like hit and miss um, as far as individual chapters. Some of them I really like, some of them I'm just sort of like, okay, got it done. So I don't know. Um, I mean, I understand why it's in the, the major playlists, um, both the APL and the Basic Marxism-Leninism Study Guide recommends anti-Deering. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's a very long work. I think for parts of it, you kind of had to be there at the time. Other parts of it w was a chance for Engels to expound on Marxist and dialectical materialist thought. So, but again, I, I've gotten kind of used to that by now after all these studies. So, I don't know, it, nothing in particular is jumping out at me. I think actually, if anything, it's stuff from the early chapters that I kind of read like back in the fall or late summer um, when he was talking about the sort of science analogies like in, in chemistry and things like that. I think I draw from that a lot when he talks about proletarianization of the population, sort of being like hooking up a battery and a battery goes through a chemical conversion, it produces energy and eventually runs out. And capitalism kind of does the same thing. It, it runs a process on society whereby various classes are proletarianized. So I use that a lot. Uh, I think that that's a very useful metaphor. And I'm almost positive it's from one of the first chapters of Anti-During Part 1. So, Do I know Pinko the Bear streamer? I do not. I, do, I really don't watch a lot of uh, streaming or stuff in general. So, uh, no, I, and I, I happen not to know that one. How do you decide which books to read first and which books last? Well, I have been working off of a number of reading lists. That is kind of the, the skeleton of it. So the basic Marxism-Leninism playlist, for example, uh, I started on that way back in the beginning, you know, spring or late winter even of 2020. And a lot of times within those texts, there will be um, citations of other works, especially in Lenin. Because Lenin wrote many, many articles that were, you know, he'd write multiple things per week. So the things would say, see also this article. And then I'd be like, well, that was a really good article. So I'm going to go read the ones that it's also referencing. And this is how we wound up with, you know, about a third of all the audiobooks I've uploaded are of Lenin. <laughs> is because he wrote prolifically in a very interesting way on a lot of topics that are, I think, crucial for people to understand in the U.S. left growing out of anarchism and um, I think are just continue to be of crucial importance. This is why we call it Marxism-Leninism. Lenin made enormous contributions. And, uh, you know, as we are saying last time, you really can't read too much Lenin. Obviously, you should read other authors as well, but as far as your foundation, more Lenin is good. <laughs> more Lenin is better than less Lenin. So... Um, as far as that, I mean, that's sort of the, the overall skeleton of it. Otherwise, you know, things uh, would, uh, you know, things would be on one reading list or another, or topics would come up that I would see people asking about in comments, or they would come up sort of on social media, Facebook, Twitter, people would start arguing about, and I would try to find a group of texts that is sort of relevant to the discussion for that, you know, teachable moment that popped up. 
And so that's how some of it would go. Um, a lot of it is recommendations from people. So, you know, I'd say maybe half of the readings were just directly recommended by somebody. I don't always read them straight off, um, but I will keep them in mind. And then, you know, maybe four months down the line, a moment pops up where I'm like, now would be a good time to read that thing that somebody recommended. I've also um, tried to read from a number of authors just because they get referenced a lot. So we did Allende because there's a lot of references to Allende. We read Sankara for that reason. Uh, writings from uh, members of the Black Panther Party and so on. Just things that you should have under your belt. You know, we did some Malcolm X. Just some of the basics. Um, you know, going through Marxists.org, looking at key Marxists. And, you know, there's things we may read eventually like some of the left comms and stuff. It's really low priority. I'd really rather get through more of the foundational stuff first. But speaking of, um, we will be finishing the basic Marxism-Leninism playlist, hopefully uh, soon. I mean, I have that planned out. We're also doing the Homelessness Industrial Complex syllabus. There are more readings coming on that. Uh, that will be kind of a constant in-between readings. The Politsturm recommended reading list, the APL, American Party of Labor recommended reading list, Marxist-Leninist reading hub list. We're almost done with that. There's like a couple of more readings. Reform a Revolution by Rosa Luxemburg. Um, you know, a few other things. So, I don't know. I just look around and people talk about what's good and I try to just, you know, write stuff down that seems good. So after we get done with a lot of this foundational stuff, I should mention also um, foreignlanguages.press. They have a foundations reading list, which covers a lot of... I had kind of wanted to, after we finished the basic Marxism-Leninism playlist study guide, go back and uh, do some foundational like Marx and Engels that we hadn't hit yet. And I noticed that uh, foreignlanguages.press has a foundations collection, which I think is pretty useful. So I'll be trying to do a bunch of those after we get done to my satisfaction with that, like I'm sure there will still be some readings that I kind of skip for now. Some of them are like, you know, I remember somebody saying, oh, you should do um, Woman and Socialism by Babel. And that book is like 12 hours long. Like I would have to stop everything else for like months to finish that. And Adrestia's Revolt already read it. So like there's not a lot of point in me duplicating that effort. Also like History of the CPSUB, um, the Finnish Bolshevik has a great audiobook of that. I think it's like 16 hours long. So if, if there's something incredibly long that somebody's already done a good reading of, I'm, it's very low priority for me to duplicate that. You know, this is a movement like we're, you know, we're trying to do the best quality work that we can at S4A, but we're not the only thing out there. And that's why if you go to the channels tab on YouTube, you know, I'm linked to a bunch of other channels that I have some sort of relationship with or that are doing some kind of work that I respect. Um, you know, check it out. If you can't find an audiobook at S4A, you may be able to find it at, you know, Finball's um, Marxist-Leninist Theory channel. Many of those are computer-read, which is, it's not just a matter of, um, the. and first of all, I thank him for uploading those. Uh, because, you know, it's a lot of work even to just have your text-to-speech do it and chop it into a video, and, like, there's a lot of work involved in that. Um, the benefit of doing it human-read, like I do, like, again, Adrestia's Revolt does, um, like Desalines does, 
you know, there's other channels that do human red. Part of the advantage of that is text-to-speech, even the best text-to-speech, can't really cope with typos necessarily or with sentences. You know, sometimes, especially reading like Marx and Engels, the sentences will be incredibly long and complex. Like if you were to diagram the sentence, it's a very complex sentence. And sometimes it'll be like missing a comma or something like that, or it'll be missing one word. And if you just feed that into a text-to-speech, it's going to be unintelligible. Like it will read what you put in, but without a human parsing it and emphasizing the sentence in a way that makes sense, it's, um, you know, you're going to be listening to that text-to-speech and going, what the hell are they talking about? It's better than nothing. And I appreciate having those um, online. It's a good thing. But I also think that over time, we collectively, people who do audiobooks and teach these works, uh, should, you know, eventually try to duplicate them all uh, as human read because it's, it's uh, just better in a number of ways in the end. I had some jackass like dropping in the comments. They're like, is this actually human red? Why didn't you just give it to a text to speech? Ha <laughs> ha fucking loser. Well, let me tell you, there are many times where I'm sitting down and reading. Well, first of all, the main reason why are these human red is because I wanted to read them. Okay. So I wanted to read them first of all. And so I read them into a microphone so that other people might benefit from it. And many people do like it. Um, but number two is there are many times where I'm reading and I have to stop and try to read a sentence like four times going, what the hell is being said here? And then I finally figure out how to sort of cue up the sentence with the emphasis and the intonation so that other people, you know, who aren't maybe reading on like the highest level imaginable, you know, people have all different verbal comprehension levels so that people who... Um, you know, just might not be as strong a reader, are still able to follow it. That's always my goal. I want to make it as understandable as possible. So I recognize, you know, I've, I've been a good reader my whole life. And, you know, a lot of people aren't that strong at reading. Yet, they should still benefit from this work. And they should be able to hear it and have somebody read it in a way that is as understandable as possible. Anyway, I don't even remember how we got onto that, but it was how do I decide which books to read first and last. You know, it's a bit like DJing, too. Like, you sort of, um, you know, you think about what sort of tones and themes have you been doing recently and what can you transition into. And sometimes I'm just, I have a book I really want to read, but I'm just sort of waiting for the right moment to transition into it. It's not that it's, you know, um, any lesser of a work or uh, that I couldn't have read it before. I just feel like it would go better a little bit later. So, you know, anyway, it's complicated, I guess. Um, ultimately coin toss. No, not really. All right. Joined the MLRH Discord at your suggestion a few weeks ago. I don't know that I've specifically recommended that, but okay. Um, to have a reading curriculum in addition to reading Capital Volume 2. We have great weekly discussions. However, I see a similar issue to what you see regarding your own viewership. The Discord has 500 members, but only about 10 people show up for the reading group. Yeah, I mean, this is always the case in anything. You're going to get, I mean, and I, you know, I'm in various groups that I'm not really active in. Um, you're going to get this anywhere because for high participation, um, 
you know, you can only highly participate in a few things at a time. I mean, that said, though, I, I do think not enough people are doing their readings. So, yeah, I, I feel you entirely. I love the comments you add to the audiobooks. I find them really helpful. Yeah, I mean, some people hate it. Like, I, you know, I put a lot of comments in black shirts and reds, and I got several comments on that, like, just shut up and read it. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't actually owe you an audiobook. I don't know if you're aware of that. Like, you don't like it? Go read it yourself, for real. Like, just go do that. Um, you know, that's the way we do it here. If you don't like it, listen to some other audiobook. I, I don't know. Today, Deering seems to have multiplied on Joe Rogan on bestseller lists. Guys like Peterson, where are the angles of today? We got to rebuild the movement. I know what you're saying. There's a bunch of fucking morons spouting crap. Uh, yeah, I get it. Although, I mean, Deering was uh, posing as a socialist, you know, is the, the kind of scary, scarier part even. I've seen your commentary on open borders. I So I think I've maybe mentioned open borders maybe once or twice. I don't know. And I saw you criticize the amazing atheist on the issue. I remember uh, watching an amazing atheist video in a hanging with the sock damn gang thing. I think it was about two years ago. And I frankly do not remember what I said. Uh, I'm kind of confused what your position on immigration is as a leftist. So let me just... So... This is a Marxist-Leninist channel, um, anti-revisionist, and so just rather than leftist. But um, yeah, so there's a work by Lenin we have up on the channel. Uh, it is Capitalism and Workers' Immigration. I would point you to something like this. It's from 1913. Um, I, anyway, I mean, you're referencing my position. I honestly don't remember exactly what you're talking about. But... Uh, you know, capitalists keep a lot of freedoms for themselves while they police workers and divide us into, you know, you can move here, you can't move here, etc. Um, I mean, this plays into sort of bourgeois nationalism and things like that. Uh, at the same time, you know, a socialist country, if you want to see what the actual immigration policies have been of different socialist countries, check it out. Uh, so anyway, I'm, I'm not really sure exactly what you're referring to. Crady Suisse, 50% likely to default today. Yeah, that was the other thing that I was seeing around the bank collapse thing was, uh, I saw a thing, I think on Reuters last night about Crady Suisse, um, having some major red flags going up. So this could be another 2008. I don't really know. I hate living in fucking collapsing hell world like this. I mean, I was, um, you know, fully aware and in the job market and everything in 2008. It sucked. I mean, you just, I couldn't find, I, I, <laughs> I was um, looking to switch jobs at the time. And let me tell you, after, you know, that fall, um, it was just a nightmare. I mean, it was just a nightmare. So if this happens, it will not be good. It will be very, very bad. NATO doesn't like Russia attempting to challenge their hegemony. Yeah, capitalists want to be on top and they don't like sharing. It's, you know, not super complicated. So I agree, yeah. 
I also think that the Ukraine-Russia war is because many people don't realize that that war is because of capitalism. Yeah, until you've got, I mean, that basic understanding going, no other real understanding is going to be possible. So that's the thing that we have to hit on most. And I think just simply saying, you know, we were talking about the whole peace in Ukraine messaging a while ago and how, yes, we, I mean, obviously we want de-escalation, but, you know, is Brian Becker going to be doing that without endorsing any of the aggression or is it going to be the sort of Russia is anti-imperialist? You know, let's, let's see what comes out of that. Um, you know, I, I mean, there's a lot of opportunism going around, let's put it that way. But yeah, if people don't understand that it's capitalism causes these wars, you're not going to really be able to um, explain much else. So that is kind of the main thing that we need to be focusing on. So let's see. Uh, what about the Fed funding the repo market crash in 2019 for $45 trillion? Yeah. Can we discuss the topic uh, from last stream about Mao's and People's War? I, honestly, there there's other things I really like to get to today. I don't think it's that um, lower priority for the stream. A little late for this comment, but I called a liberal by some Euro communists for calling Russia imperialist lol. Yeah, I mean, take it in stride. You know, stick to patiently and calmly explaining your position, you know, but uh, you're going to get hit with, with a lot of nonsense. It's just the way it is. As much as I dislike the Silicon Valley for creating a lot of fake jobs, if these deposits fail, people will lose their jobs. And yeah, this we need to end this system because stuff like this is guaranteed to happen in capitalism. And it is bad for people. It's a system of exploitation. So, yeah, it, it takes this catastrophic form sometimes. As is such in terms of the banks, the working class suffers for the failures of the bourgeoisie. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, they, they externalize and uh, push any cost onto us that they can possibly manage to push onto us while keeping the gains. That's the whole idea. That's the whole idea of capitalism. If you don't like that, you're against capitalism because that is just inherent to the logic. Now is the time to get organized as capitalism creates more unemployed workers, which can be future comrades, if there are local communist groups. Yes, absolutely. That's why I've been stressing the need to get involved in your local left and build up the parties and organizations. A lot of them need an improvement in quality, but they also need an improvement in quantity. The, uh, you know, bad struggle, weak struggle creates a weak vanguard, low class consciousness. Class consciousness can come from study and things like that. But it also comes, and what maybe sharpens it the fastest, is direct involvement in struggle, which you then need to supplement with theory and history so you don't, you know, um, reinvent the wheel or, you know, waste time making mistakes that were already borne out by history. This is why we study the 175 years of Marxist history. Even Marx and Engels started out by criticizing the existing socialist tendencies of their day and improving them into scientific socialism, you know, and, and uh, developing dialectical materialism, historical materialism. You know, we, we don't have time to just grope around in the dark for solutions, you, and you don't need to. We can skip to the more advanced lessons and then start applying them in our struggle. 
But again, if people aren't really struggling, then it's all abstract. Class consciousness doesn't sharpen the way that it needs to. So strong struggle is going to create a better vanguard. What's a vanguard? Vanguard is a relative term. It is that portion of the working class which is most class conscious and educated. I mean, educated specifically about politics, economics, history, class struggle, things like that. You know, anarchist, I wound up in a minor, minor in that I didn't get very invested in it, but um, had some anarchists sort of trying to argue things like basically everything that ever happened wrong in the USSR comes, you know, can be just boiled down to vanguard party. No, that's really terrible, simplistic explanation um, because... The masses make history, but the vanguard really helps to shape it and direct it into a constructive way. If we don't, it's uh, just going to be dumb luck that the masses who haven't studied that history and are just sort of guessing at what to do intuitively. Um, and and that, that includes me, you know, a number of years ago. That, that includes you before you did the study. You know, none of us were in that more class conscious um, camp. So anyway, uh, you know, arguing just c comes down to the creation of a vanguard. Uh, vanguard is a relative term. It just exists naturally. It's the portion that is more um, class conscious and studied. You can organize that vanguard, but you can't really create it. It's just, again, there, there's going to be people in the working class who have less class consciousness and those who have more. The vanguard is the ones who have more. And so a vanguard party is organizing those people into a party, uh, but you still have to keep your ties with the masses who really drive history. If the masses aren't listening to the vanguard and they're listening to the bourgeoisie instead, then you're not going to have a revolution, you're not going to have successful struggle, and so on. But yeah, now is the time for sure. We need more struggle, we need a better vanguard, we need greater class consciousness, and we need solid organization. All of these are lacking, and, and we, we do need more because the right wing is, you know, funding, they're pouring billions and billions of dollars into creation of a myriad of fascist organizations and fascizing the mainstream parties, as well as creating many other auxiliary, smaller militias and, you know, far right splinter parties and things like that. Anyone else get really offended by the Bernie Sanders, quote, socialism for the rich bullshit that he spewed? He would use examples of bank bailouts as, quote, socialism for the rich, which is not what socialism is. Yeah, whenever I see that stuff, I comment on it. Um, that's not socialism. That's just capitalism. That's capitalists acting in their, you know, interest. <laughs> um, so, you know, class struggle is the motive force of history. That's the, one of the main takeaways from Marxism. And so capitalists do act collectively as a class. They also compete with each other individually, but they do collaborate as a class and they do certain things that are in their class interests, such as operating the capitalist state, you know, invading other countries uh, to, to exploit them, uh, you know, subjugating, which is part of operating the capitalist state, subjugating the proletariat, for exploitation and the extraction of surplus value. They compete with each other viciously for who's going to be top dog within that class and who's going to buy whose company out and who's going to take over whose empire and all that stuff. But as a class, they do some things collectively 
And it's not socialism just anytime anyone acts in their collective class interest. It's, it's capitalism when capitalists do that. Uh, socialism when the proletariat is in power and acting in our class interest. So, yeah, you can't apply socialism for the rich. It's an idiotic term that really needs to be discarded and left behind. Do I expect better from Bernie Sanders? No, I do not. Unfortunately, Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, the U.S. left, I don't know, have we outgrown the need for Bernie Sanders? We'll see what happens in this election. You know, we mentioned Marianne Williamson briefly, who is um, doing a book tour, I mean, running for president in the Democratic Party this year. Um, she has, you know, nothing to say, really. She supports capitalism. It's just this sort of, you know, anti-neoliberalism, social democracy, like we need fair capitalism or whatever the fuck she's talking about. We need to get away from, you know, hyper-capitalism. No, this is capitalism. It's capitalism. You can't make it nice on any kind of a lasting basis. You can temporarily win some concessions, but the capitalists will tear those down at their first opportunity. You know, they will only give you concessions when they politically have to and when they're afraid for their power. So, but then as soon as that they can take them away, they will. You know, as soon as they are no longer in fear for their power. And as we've made the point before, um, when you have capitalists fearing for their power, keep pushing because it's their power that we want, not just the concessions. As we were saying before, yes, we want the best conditions for the class struggle that you can get, meaning, uh, you know, the most civil liberties so that we can engage in all kinds of protest and struggle. That's great. Um, but that's all temporary leading up to a revolutionary moment. And as soon as revolution becomes a viable option, as soon as you're in a moment where that's actually a choice you can like take concrete action on right away, then fighting for more democratic rights actually becomes the reactionary position that's standing in the way of, you know, uh, if you choose more democratic rights under capitalism over revolution when that is right in front of you, and I'd say it's not right in front of us right now, we don't have the organization or class consciousness for it, but when it is right in front of you um, and you just opt for capitalism with rights instead, that's a reactionary step. So, I mean, and that said, you know, uh, you'll see groups like CPUSA that will make that point about we need more, you know, democratic rights and optimal um, conditions for the class struggle. But you can't engage in wanton opportunism as they do, as the leadership of CPSA does, in order to get those democratic rights, where it's just like, you know, keep voting Dem and you're selling people on like vote against fascism when the Democrats collaborate with the GOP on like every major issue. Um, you know, you can't vote against fascism by voting for a fascist collaborator. And you're just doing people a disservice by that. So, yeah, I mean, fighting for more um, democratic rights and freedoms to get more wiggle room for class struggle. Okay, fine. But at some point, you know, well, and that point would be right away, um, not engaging in opportunism to do that, because then you're just actually weakening the struggle and you're taking your struggle off course. No matter how many rights you get, you've sort of abandoned the struggle for opportunism at that point. So... Um, you got to find that balance, and that's that's what this is about. It, it's also not brain surgery either. Like, a lot of these things are pretty well established. 
Yeah, Sanders' definition of socialism is social democracy. We, like, way early in the channel, you know, we did some videos on that, and, like, it was a little unclear, like, what Bernie's actual long-term outlook was. Is he really for keeping capitalism with concessions? Or, um, you know, is it, uh, is he actually a socialist long-term, but, you know, wants to do these reforms in the meantime? I mean, the way that he has sold out the movement repeatedly now to the Democratic Party, I think, confirms his commitment to socialism is not real. Um, so more people realizing that would be great. You know, and as I've said, I think it would take a left coalition. I think recreating the Bernie moment, you know, read my pinned Twitter post um, at Socialism S4A. Pinned Twitter post is about that. You know, Bernie was rallying people by the stadium full all across the United States who want some kind of major change, at least. These are the more advanced masses who do want change and want more rights and want capital to be reined in, if not outright abolished. Uh, I mean, some of them do. You know, there's both. Bernie rallied the broad left from people who really do want to see the end of capitalism to now. You know, where he is, he's more kind of on the right side of that coalition but there was a left wing of it as well that was you know anti-capitalist to the point of you know wanting to abolish capitalism uh and so on anyway those people are there and they're still there they're just not being rallied uh again i think it would take a left coalition to recreate that bernie moment but outside the democratic party you know minus the uh democratic party opportunism if you please so anyway Imposing Karl Marx on the world is a form of white supremacy and European colonization. No, it is not. And you didn't support that with anything at all. Um, I, you know, when a white European comes up with the idea of saying, hey, we should get rid of colonies, that is not imposing European colonization. Is in fact part of the anti-colonial struggle from inside. So no, very much not so. Also, Marxism has informed basically every anti-colonial national liberation struggle throughout the 20th century. You just, you, you have nothing supporting that at all. All right, looking through, keeping an eye on the clock because we do have to cover some things. Can you upload more of the audiobooks to Spotify, more of the backlog? Yes, go over to Patreon, drop a few hundred dollars in there, and that will give me the time that is needed to engage in that process. The channel has my hands, and other things that I do in my life, has my hands completely full at the moment, so I cannot just like pull that out of my ass like, wave a magic wand uh yeah so <laughs> I, I i am currently at capacity as far as what i'm doing sort of managing the s4a media presence we did just recently expand onto spotify we've been on soundcloud for a while um i'm putting it on internet archive as well um just even that i mean it, it takes you know extra time to upload it to those extra things no, I cannot block out hours and hours to be 
um, you know, getting the MP3s and putting them over onto Anchor and Spotify and copying over the titles and descriptions. No. So again, if you'd like to log into Patreon, drop me several hundred dollars. Maybe I'll have like more time, but no, I can't. And, and it's just when people make, you know, suggestions like that, it's hard for me not to get frustrated because I really am sprinting as it is to do all of the things that I do. When people are like, hey, it's not enough. Do something else additionally. I, I just have a hard time as taking that as anything but selfish. <laughs> you know, oh, I mean, anyway, I think you get the point. Um, that, that really just strains my nerves, like, dramatically. Yes, you're welcome for all the stuff I've already put up there. And why don't you just at least go to fucking SoundCloud? Is that too difficult for you? Jesus. <laughs> like, just... Anyway, um, that stuff drives me nuts. Oh, do we have an anarchist in here? All right, we're going to... Are you being... You study books and try to promote communism with books. Books is in all caps. True communists use the oral tradition in all caps. Is this a joke? Like, are you, are you trying to be funny? Because it, I mean, this is funny what you're posting. I don't know if you're meaning it to be haha funny or just, you know, funny strange. But, um, when you read, so you're saying Marx was an imperialist. You want to back that up with anything? Marx was an imperialist endorser of book learning. I mean, honestly, is this a joke? I, I'm going to need to, to, to mute you there. This is just absurd. See, this is why, like, arguing with anarchists, it kind of only goes so far. Um, this, this seems like a, like a Poe here. This seems like a just completely absurd um, representation, like the logical extreme. Like, can you hear, if, if this isn't intended as a joke, um, okay, we're going to maybe give you, give you some time out there. Um, boy, that was dumb. Was the whole COVID denier thing an op so no one would believe when the government started lying about it being over? Uh... We got a multi-tiered thing. What they basically want is business as usual. So that's why you had, you know, the Boogaloo boys out there with automatic weapons during the reopen protests, like literally a month into this thing in 2020. They want business as usual. They want people to just keep, you know, keep getting sick, keep getting exploited, whatever it takes to keep the wheels of capitalism turning. That's primarily what they want. Everything else flows out of that. And Biden has basically been completely captured by that. Biden, who ran on, you know, COVID's going to be my top priority, this and that. He got in and completely dismantled the COVID response. So that's how that actually worked out. I had a guy come into work after going to the ER for the first time at 70 years old because he had a bad blood clot and he almost lost his leg. Yeah. James Connolly, Labor in Irish History and the Reconquest of Ireland, two quality books for all. Yeah, those are on uh, the foundations, uh, foreignlanguages.press. We'll be doing them eventually. I think Labor in Irish History is pretty long from when I was glancing at it. So, you know, the priority at this stage is to do more shorter works. 
it's much easier to upload like five or six, you know, half an hour to an hour works and have people get the idea, digest the ideas out of that than to like upload a six hour book that very few people are honestly going to read or listen to the whole thing. So I'd much rather, you know, it's what I was saying before about like putting a thousand page textbook in stage one of the ML Reading Hub curriculum. I don't think that's the wisest move because you're going to get people hanging up on that. And then I would rather see people get, it wouldn't be my strategy. Let's put it that way. I'd rather people read many shorter works with different ideas and have at least some understanding of a broader range of ideas at the beginning stage, then get into uh, depth and more advanced topics later on. But you kind of got to prioritize the basics. I think I'm sure that that's a very interesting book, but we need to read other stuff first. Um, that's part of the reason I, I wound up dragging on anti during. I, I do feel like it's, uh, I don't know. I, I get why it's on that list, but there was a lot of things I actually wanted to read first. All right. I work at a pharmacy. Let me tell you, their COVID response was a joke. They removed all the social distancing foot paddings. I do remember that. Yeah, some uh, supermarkets had it where, like, the aisles were one way. I mean, it's long gone now. Um, we used to get a few shipments of free N95 masks, but only a few to last the population a few days or weeks at best. The And yeah, if you're not mandating N95s, like, most people aren't even going to know about them. The COVID hero pay went away long ago. Yeah. Masking not required, and N95 good masking rare. If you want uh, to mask, you have to buy it yourself. Uh, job only offers KN95 masks for store orders for staff, but they rarely come in. The only thing remaining from COVID is we have those clear glass barriers at checkouts, which is better than nothing as far as you know, getting like spittle on your face from somebody spraying. But COVID is airborne, so it's only not going to do that much. It'll go right around those things eventually. <clears throat> so... Yeah, I mean, Biden's whole thing, five months or four months in, you know, he got inaugurated in January, four months later in mid-May, vaccine relax, take the masks off. Right there, we were dead in the water, right there. And everyone was shocked. No one saw this coming. Yet all of the state public health departments and all the state political parties went along with it. So that, you know, as far as like hashtag resist, I did not see any resisting. We are grateful for how much work you do for us. Yeah, I'm not trying to like have people grovel at my feet. I just want you to remember, I started this channel literally so I could read more. <laughs> and obviously this has turned into more of a collective venture where people are supporting and it's turned into kind of a network. I just, people need to like keep this in perspective and you can't just like put demands on me that are not realistic. So I just need people to keep that in mind. Because otherwise, it, it is just aggravating, you know? So, anyway, we do what we do, and that is that. But, uh, you know, and it, it's not like we get... Well, anyway, let's move on. My text-to-speech translated social democratic to social de-parenthesis emocratic. Yeah, that's, that's the thing. You put that into te text-to-speech is... It's just better to do human red. It really is. 
The only text-to-speech I've ever liked is the Snoop Dogg voice. <laughs> nice. I don't know if anyone else has seen it, but uh, I've been noticing it a bit more. A decent amount of far right wingers coping online, and very unfortunately and infuriatingly, my own dad in real life. Whenever I visit him, recently, legitimately thinking COVID is a bioweapon from China that they were working on, but they fucked up and it leaked because of the Communist Party of China's incompetency. So then, to quote, get back at the rest of the world, the CPC let it spread purposefully so that they weren't the only country dealing with it. And um, does he believe in masking? Because <laughs> you have most of the people who believe in the bioweapon thing as the... Uh, well, I, I, I had a post on Twitter about this. So let me, let me just read it to you straight out. Um, it was from, I think, last week. And it goes a little something like this. As soon as the fucking tab loads. All right. Jeopardy music. Come on, come on. Okay. Come on, Elon. Connect those wires. Here we go. Here we go. Spinning circle, spinning circle. Okay. Yeah, this is from March 9th. Do you know about the incredible quantum properties of SARS coronavirus 2, the virus that causes COVID-19? It is both not real and a lab-leaked product of biowarfare research. It is also both just a cold and a Chinese weapon to kill off U.S. patriots. So you get people believing these crazy things like, oh, it's a bioweapon that escaped. Do you mask against it? Uh, no. Okay, then you're just saying words then, aren't you? You're just believing in things that make you feel excited to believe them. You're not actually paying attention to any of the fucking evidence and forming a consistent position that is in line with the evidence, that is the best match of the evidence. You're just saying words to like feel like you're a part of some political intrigue. You're a fucking dupe and you're getting reinfected with a fucking really serious virus. It doesn't matter at this point where it came from if we don't control it. You know, you'd be sitting there on a fucking ventilator be like, it came from China. Well, on a ventilator, you wouldn't even be able to talk. You'd be like, uh, they take the ventilator out because you just survived and you're like, it came from China, lab leak. Okay, well then why didn't you get fucking vaccinated against it, you fucking asshole? Why did you spread it to 49 people by not masking, you fucking asshole? If it's a fucking bioweapon, why aren't you taking it more seriously? Oh, it's just the flu. It's also a bioweapon. What? That makes no goddamn sense. There is not an S4A Discord, no. Uh, thank you, Jacob, for the link. I am probably not going to be able to get to it, but I will check it out. Someone else says, I watched that a few years ago. Pretty awful. I mean, a lot of these videos, it's like not really worth responding to them. So, yeah. So there's a series out, okay, prime example of this. Somebody asked me like way back in the beginning, there's another channel, Anarch, A-N-A-R-K, Anarch here. They did a series called The State is Counter-Revolutionary. It's in four parts. Each part is like at least 45 minutes long. 
this was like way back in the beginning when I was doing a lot more reaction videos. And uh, I started doing a reaction to this video. I literally just could not keep up with the amount of bullshit. It was like the bullshit to like fact ratio was like nine to one. I just couldn't find anything solid to even like you would have to do reams and reams of exposition and background just to be able to explain. Like if somebody had bought what they were saying, just to be able to dismantle it, it was like anyway. So that's for a general audience. Anybody who is actually, you know, you have the sort of uh, question of the Vanguard people who are actually somewhat up on the history you know, uh, picking up stuff like that and spreading it. And then the sort of general population and the general population is not going to have any of the background. First of all, they're not really going to be interested probably for the most part, but as far as anarchists, you know, having this just like wild take, uh, you know, Lenin was a Blancist Lenin actually wrote against Blancism like many times and demonstrably isn't that, but anyway, it's just, um, You'd have to write like a term paper, like a thesis, unraveling the fucking nonsense. And at the end, I'm not sure that the people who are taking that seriously are like, again, you've always got to prioritize this or this, because you've only got so much time, so much energy. And it's just, I, I just don't feel like a lot of those things are really worth the time and energy when I could be doing other stuff. So, you know, that's just, um, you know, I appreciate a lot of people are listening to this channel now. But there's just only so much you can do in a day and, you know, you got to, I have to pick what I think is going to do the most good. The idea of an organized vanguard leading understandably makes people uncomfortable. Well, no, because it's, it's exactly the sort of justified authority that anarchists say that they're in favor of. So... Uh, yeah, anyway, the idea of an organized vanguard leading understandably makes people uncomfortable, uh, but without it, you're left with an opportunist worship of spontaneity instead of an active struggle toward socialism. Yeah, if spontaneity had really worked, we would see a lot more examples of it working. Of course, anarchists will like then bend over backwards to be like, well, the fucking vanguard has sabotaged the spontaneity. I don't know how to like deal with that level of stupidity. Like, that's just not a good position. Anyway. CPUSA is revisionist since William Z. Foster. Foster and maybe half were the last anti-revisionists. Uh, no argument here. Actually, somewhere on the list, it hasn't quite made those 30 next ones, but I want to do some of uh, Foster's texts against revisionism. Bernie is like the average Dutch liberal. Which parties would constitute a left coalition? I mean, any that don't take the corporate money. You know, again, I think what we have to think about to some extent is how do we go from where we are now to the next step? You and I are sitting here and we're talking communism and we've done the reading the average person, even who considers themselves left, does not. And nor do they see the need to. So the question to me is like, how, how did I come to see the need to do this study? 
And it was from going out there and, you know, uh, being enamored with some, you know, well, I mean, I was introduced to Marxism long ago. Then I, uh, I mean, I, I didn't study it deeply. Then I got out into the left, into the anti-war movement in the 2000s and other things going on in the 2000s and through the 2010s. And after watching the U.S. left just recycle mistake after mistake after mistake, I was like, I need to go back to that Marxism stuff and actually really learn this. And uh, we need to get that going because I don't think that we can have a left movement without, you know, tying it into the actual um, successful history of uh, socialist movements that have existed throughout the world. So I saw the need for that through a lot of struggle that I saw going in circles. But for the people who are currently going in circles, they're not tired of it yet. So I think that, you know, a lot of people do learn from making mistakes and trial and error to some extent, but making mistakes, the question is, can you keep the number of mistakes to a minimum and maximize the progress? Yes, you can, but that doesn't mean there won't be any mistakes this won't be a fully linear process. There will be some, you know, two steps forward, one steps back, um, one step back, singular, uh, and so on. So the average sort of U.S. leftist does not see the need yet for what we're talking about. How do we get them to see that need? Well, I would encourage them to keep taking the steps that they're taking, see where it gets them, and stay in dialogue with them. And so a left coalition. Um, I, I don't think that we have great left parties, but anybody from the Greens on left that does not take the corporate money, anybody who played by at least the Bernie rules of not taking corporate money, um, but no affiliation with the Democratic Party, you know, and and so on. So there's a lot of uh, small parties. Many of them are not Marxist. Some are not explicitly proletarian, would not include the libertarians, for example. Uh, they're all for, you know, corporate money and private prisons and all that shit. Um, I mean, you know, take your average list of, of U.S. left parties. So, um, because I, I think it's a question of how do you take the people who consider themselves left and advance all of the people who are going to be advanceable in that movement to the furthest along stage, to the best position that they can be. But again, they're not going to take those steps unless they see a need for it. And that may involve their movement taking on a political project and failing and then getting criticized by Marxists and, and you know, not just criticized in the sense of like scolded, but criticized in the sense of we can explain to them, hey, uh, here's why the step that you took failed. Here's what you should do instead. And it's through that process, I think, that people come around you know, the average sort of leftist with a moderate amount of class consciousness um, comes around to the realization that many communists have reached in the past, including me, that, oh, there's a reason why, you know, the, the common turn did things the way that they did. There's a reason why all these various parties that were more successful did things the way that they did. And we shouldn't repeat those mistakes either. But if they were ready to hear that straight off, they'd be listening to it now. So there are some people who made that jump right after Bernie. I know because they were in the original audience of S4A. 
So that's great for the people who made that jump in 2019, 2020, or earlier. But some people need another round of disillusionment before they're ready to listen and before they're ready to self-criticize to a greater extent. And we, I think we need to just encourage that process until we get the kind of struggle going that we need. And then out of that, we will get, I think, the party that we need. But you know, we can't snap our fingers and do it. People have to be convinced. And it's partly through their own failings that people get convinced of the need to change their tactics. So, Speaking of Spotify, be sure to rate five stars. I was the first uh, rating on an episode the other day. Let's get more. Thank you for that. Yeah, that will help to boost it. In Sweden, it was a disaster with our strategy on herd immunity, just workers being offered up sacrifices on the altar of capitalism. Yeah. Sleepy Joe, wake up. He knows what he's doing. I mean, well, he at least knows the words to say. The people making the decisions behind him, um, they know what they're doing. I mean, he had the guy from Bain Capital as the COVID czar. That, that was like why we got Jeff Zients. We did uh, two articles on it on the channel. That's why we got the dismantling of the COVID response that we got. Also, the strength of a planned economy democratically run by the working class would be more effective against the pandemic. All the skyrocketing prices of vaccines and the patents on vaccines where everyone wants a piece of the profit pie and not combating the virus uh, as, a, as a collective. Yeah. No one likes having something they do for themselves to be turned into a job. Yeah, and, and to be fair, like I understand... Um, you know, I'm not reading communist literature just for like abstract pleasure as a bourgeois individual. I'm doing it as a somebody who has been involved in working class politics and struggle. So I understand, you know, I have a revolutionary duty to do my part, just like every single one of you listening has. But we also are not supposed to be martyrs and we can't break ourselves in that process. And please understand, like I'm trying to fulfill my piece of what I can contribute as much as possible. Um, and you got to understand, you know, people have limits. I'm not a jukebox. So you, people really have to understand that. So I get it. Like, uh, I mean, and, and I do enjoy it, although it is like stressful. Uh, I enjoy the revolutionary optimism it gives me. I enjoy the knowledge that other people are hearing this stuff and it's going to impact their activism and their struggle. So I like all of that. But, um, yeah, I think sometimes it gets pushed in ways where people are, I almost get the feeling like it's being, you know, uh, read this, entertain me, amuse me, audiobook boy. And it's just like, hey, fuck off, asshole. You know, I, I did this because I needed to read and then I realized it could, you know, help advance the U.S. left and help improve the U.S. left to put this stuff out there and to try to teach it to the extent that I could and to encourage, um, you know, people to take an active role in the struggle um, and not remain isolated individuals. So I get it. Yeah, there's revolutionary duty involved. To that extent, yeah, it's a job. Like, it's, it's a job in the sense of we have to do this uh, because only socialism leads to a guaranteed future for the human species. 
Um, and I'm going to do everything I can, but me burning out does not help anyone. So just like you burning out doesn't help anyone. There's still too much uh, of that in the movement in general within organizations. Certain people will um, take on roles of being really overworked and burn out and become martyrs. And then they can't work for like three or four years after that. So that's not a healthy thing. And um, just, just fucking, you know, upload it yourself. You know, what I'd love is like, ooh, read this. How about, hey, I read this. Here's my high quality audio book of it. It's a thing that you haven't read yet. Awesome. Because that means you did something instead of just waiting for me to do it for you. You see what I'm saying? There's a certain amount of, you know, labor discipline here within the, uh, within the activism and, and struggle stage. You know, we all, we all can bear some of that burden. You know, you have a role in this. You're not just a passive consumer of revolutionary education. That's not really how this works. Anyway, I understand and accept that I, I have to just say this from time to time. So it is what it is. But uh, yeah, the, the more that you can spread that understanding among your peers, the better. Because this is the mindset that we all need to develop. I developed it. You can develop it too. We all need to do our part. And we all need to, you know, share the load. So, you know, some of us are going to appear to be doing more than others. Some of us are going to shine in ways that others don't. Some of us excel at work that just doesn't shine. But do your part. That's, that's, that's the point. History YouTube is a constant producer of bullshit they don't even bother providing citations for. I would just spend the would, would rather spend the time just reading a historian like E.H. Carr, to be honest. History YouTube, I don't even understand why people watch it. Well, I do know why. It's just a circus of people just, you know, chin stroking. And none of them are really trying to do, you know, at best they're trying to be activists for upholding liberal democracy. Um, pointless, pointless. There's no fucking point to history YouTube. And you're right. Yeah, it's um, just a hot air factory. Absolutely. And funded by capital many times. I mean, there's plenty of other people who just like, you know, sort of um, hearing themselves talk, but it's not actually tied into any political action of any kind. At least none that actually, you know, challenges the system. So anyway. It seems like a recent bright point in difference okay, is the recent bank issue with SVB and rolling back of Dodd-Frank. This seems to have reignited the divide between progressives and more centrists within the Democratic Party. Yeah, and those cent the progressives need to get the fuck out of the Democratic Party. There is no hope of doing anything of any lasting value or possibly any value, even temporary within the Democratic Party. If AOC and the squad didn't prove that, if Bernie Sanders hasn't proved that, I don't know what you're waiting for. Tell me what you're waiting for. We can talk about it. I don't mean you specifically, Canopy. I mean, in general, if you're hearing this and you're like, no, AOC might still pull it off. I, please tell me what is going on with your thought process because it should be pretty clear that that is not happening. Organize a cadre organization as the Bolsheviks did and follow the class struggle intensely and intervene in it to aid them in the organizing of this revolutionary organization. 
Yeah, and again, like, you see the need for that. Um, even me, 10 years ago, like, I mean, I might have been interested and drawn to it somewhat. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just people um, see the, recognize and feel the need for that to greater or lesser degrees. There's plenty of people who are just like, no, there's, there's another way we can do this. No, not really. And, you know, again, I think a lot of that is coming from a very abstract, hypothetical point of view, not grounded in real struggle is part of why I say crappy struggle creates a crappy vanguard of, you know, hypotheticals and future possibilities. Well, no, we need to, you know, in the crucible of social struggle, we need to put these ideas to the test, get the results. And when we don't get the results we want, modify our methods and update our knowledge and theory accordingly. That's social science. All right, we are caught up with the chat now. And uh, is the stream cutting? It's, I think people are getting different things. I don't have a great bit rate today, but uh, yeah. All right, I'm gonna take that quick break. We wound up chatting longer than expected. So I'll be back in one minute, and then we will um, go into the articles for today. So I'll be right back. All right, let's get into our articles. So starting with today being Long COVID Awareness Day, wanted to read a few things related to that. What are we starting with? Um, yeah, so first of all, well, let's here get a, we got three things. Um, this was in the Huffington Post, and this is the experience of long COVID. Just five or seven, excuse me, quick um, case studies. They just interviewed seven people who have long COVID to just discuss their symptoms. I figure this is a pretty good way to start out uh, long COVID awareness day. We're just doing a couple things on this. And I want to say, you know, the right wingers are out in force saying that long COVID is, you know, oh, it's vaccine side effects. First of all, no, long COVID existed before the vaccine was even developed. Second, if you don't like the vaccine, you must hate the virus because the vaccine uh, contains just a small piece of the virus. And the virus has everything that the vaccine has in much more abundance. So if you don't like the vaccine, you should really hate the virus and you should be doing everything that you possibly can to avoid getting it or spreading it. That means wearing an N95 or P100, um, avoiding crowds, etc. So, you know, it's logically inconsistent to say, oh, the vaccine is causing long COVID when, first of all, it existed prior to the vaccine. Second of all, um, the vaccine is not going to be causing anything that the virus itself isn't because it contains the spike protein, which is one component of the virus. Um, the spike protein itself can cause inflammation and other problems, but um, the whole virus is even worse, and it will create a massive amount of spike protein in your body. So, yeah, very, very logically inconsistent position there that a lot of people are just running with without a thought in their head, and they just type that shit out and they go on with their lives um, because they're on a bandwagon and they, they think 
They're on the winning team of other COVID denialists, and they think it's not never going to catch up with them. It definitely is uh, sooner or later because COVID is not going to get better on its own. Can't stress this enough. We have at this point no reason to believe that COVID will go away on its own. Even if you're saying that it has become endemic, why would you want it to be endemic? It is a crippling disease. So, um, you know, if you're just saying, oh, we just have to accept that COVID is going to be circulating at these levels, basically indefinitely, that's a completely unsustainable situation. It causes heart attacks and clots and crippling mental impairment. It causes emotional disorders. It causes lung damage. It causes kidney damage. It causes immune system suppression and disruption. It kills T cells. That is not a sustainable thing to have people getting infected two or three times a year. Eventually, you just simply die after getting it X number of times. For some people, it's going to be three times you die. For some people, you get COVID five times and then you die. For some people, it might be eight or nine times, but if this thing keeps circulating long enough and you're not masking, etc., you're going to die from repeatedly getting infected because every time you get it, you don't come away stronger, you come away weaker. We were covering this earlier today. It does damage to all of your major organs and your immune system. So um, this is not a sustainable situation. Now, is it possible that the virus will suddenly mutate itself out of existence? Technically, it's also possible that I will get struck by lightning on a sunny day, but it's not very likely. We have no reason, in other words, to think that that is a likely thing to happen that we can just sit back and not take action on because it's going to just happen on its own. It could happen, but the responsible thing to do as an adult is when there's a problem, take steps to take care of it. And that's not being done adequately with the pandemic. Yes, there's vaccines. Unfortunately, they don't work that well. They do reduce disease severity, so they are efficacious to a degree, but that efficacy fades rapidly. After about three or four months, it's cut way, way, way down, and uh, it doesn't really stop spread, and it is better than nothing. Um, you know, I'm seeing a lot of good things about the Novavax vaccine, which is not an mRNA vaccine. That seems to be having very good results, and for people who don't like the mRNA stuff or afraid of it or whatever. It doesn't matter. You can go seek out the Novavax, at least get that. But again, that's not going to stop the spread. Um, and that, that continues to be a problem. That's something that we have to do. Because again, the alternative is COVID is probably not going to go away on its own. I would love it if it did. But we're now in year four of this with no real signs of it stopping. In fact, the current um, strains of it are far more severe than anything that we've had before, far more contagious as well. It's much uh, worse than the original strain of COVID. So um, this is the situation we're at. Is it going to be worse next year? I mean, it's been worse every year up to this point. Why wouldn't it keep getting worse? So yeah, responsible adults, when there's a problem, take active steps to deal with it. They don't just stick their head in the sand and then, you know, do a bunch of make-believe fairy tale shit. That is, um, 
you know, not the responsible, even if you believe in sort of rugged individualism and whatever, okay, you great, personal responsibility, okay. But if you're not actually doing your part to protect yourself and your family from this thing and anybody else you may care about, um, then you're not even doing that. You're just being a lazy asshole who believes in fairy tales and not science. Okay. Well, why would you want to be that? I wouldn't. So anyway, uh, let's do three quick things on long COVID. This article is what long COVID feels like according to seven people who have it. So we've covered, you know, breakdowns of statistics, like what are the most likely symptoms that people get and things like that. Here is qualitatively, you know, somebody saying, I have it, I have these symptoms, this is what my life has been like. Three years into the coronavirus pandemic, many are behaving like life is, quote, back to normal. But for the millions of people throughout the world affected by long COVID, an ongoing set of often debilitating health problems that arise from an earlier COVID infection, quote, normal feels like an elusive uphill battle. Quote, for most patients, this is a stuttering process. Some days are okay, and some are really bad, said Christian Sandrock, a pulmonary, that is lung health, critical care and infectious disease physician and professor of medicine at the University of California, Davis. Though the complications are varied, long COVID generally plays out in a combination of profound fatigue, tiredness, and inability to do the things you need to take care of yourself, Sandrock told HuffPost. Quote, from my patients, this includes extreme exhaustion, inability to think, and when they do apply themselves, they're completely spent and exhausted even after a short period of time. In some cases, they have chest pain, palpitations, that'd be your heart skipping beats and double beats, and shortness of breath that can limit work or simple activity. So in other words, people go to try to do something like you know, do the laundry or like, uh, you know, wash some dishes or, you know, play with their kid or whatever. And just simple exertion for 10 or 15 minutes, maybe not even that long, leaves them wiped out. So that's the fatigue that comes out of COVID. And sometimes it's accompanied by chest pain, heart irregularities, and shortness of breath. There can be a light at the end of the tunnel. Quote, over a period of time, as we treat and improve, we hope to see a general upward trajectory, meaning if you look back one to two months, despite good and bad days, you should be a little bit better. In other words, more uh, good days than bad, or the good days get a little better and the bad days also get a little better. Despite being a nationally recognized condition, because of the variance of the symptoms, and there are many different symptoms long COVID can cause, because SARS coronavirus 2 infects over 80 different body tissues, infects your like everywhere in your body, your brain, your heart, your lungs, your muscles, like everything. So it can screw you up in all kinds of ways. Those suffering from long COVID often had their symptoms underdiagnosed or dismissed by family and friends, employers, and by some, I'd say probably most, in the medical community. Quote, it's true that there is still so much we do not know about this topic, and we are trying to improve over time. A lot remains unknown. Sandrock said, but it is clear that patients with long COVID have brain inflammation. This is likely the driver of symptoms. Let me add some symptoms, um, but there's plenty of other things that, you know, COVID will directly infect your pancreas, for example, um, increasing your odds of developing diabetes, and especially in children, that's the case. 
So, I mean, that wouldn't be brain inflammation in that case. It can cause damage throughout um, major organ tissue of all kinds. Anyway, to get a better understanding of what living with long COVID is like, we asked readers with long COVID to share what it physically feels like for them. Below, they share their experiences in their own words. Responses have been edited lightly for clarity and length, and some last names have been omitted for privacy. So here's Owen White, before and after COVID. He said, long COVID feels like he's fighting a double hangover on like a daily basis. 33 years old. I got COVID in December 2021, but it took a few months for the long COVID to kick in. As is typical, I might add. I had long COVID. Um, I got uh, COVID in December 2020. And I didn't really get, um, I had pretty major symptoms for about 11 months. So they say that like, as that doctor was saying before, um, the symptoms tend to get better over time. For some people they do. And for some of the symptoms they do. But other people it just goes on and on. For a lot of people though, it can be like, you know, six to 12 months that they're having these major symptoms. And again, sometimes they never get better. But anyway. Now I wake up each morning feeling like I'm at the bottom of a swimming pool. I fight through the feeling of a double hangover and make it to my workplace. Sometimes the elevator is out of order. If so, I probably will have to skip lunch since I can't afford to climb the stairs more than once without risking a day-long crash. Or excuse me, days-long crash. It's like I have to get all my energy from a loan shark and when I live beyond my means, I pay a serious price. Let me add, this is one of the major things I had. When I got COVID, that December 2020, um, and I was trying to be careful, but I wound up in a scenario where I was just suddenly in tight quarters with like 50 people who weren't masking, and I just couldn't get out of there fast enough, and I think I got it there. Anyway, um, it was like by mid-afternoon... I had to lie down on the couch for like hours. And then after a while, I would start to feel a little better and I would get up for five or 10 minutes and then my energy would be gone and I would have to lie back down for literally hours again. This went on for months and then I, I had other symptoms as well. So I know what this guy is talking about where like if you overexert yourself, which with this condition can be very minor exertion you will just crash for like, where you just can't fucking move. So that happens. All right, next case, Hannah, 31. My COVID case last summer was mild. I felt worse and worse as the days went on, but by day six or seven, I started to turn a corner. I was advised by my doctor to go to the ER due to experiencing trouble breathing, but my oxygen nev level never went below 98, and I was sent home. So she had mild short COVID. She had mild acute COVID. Guess what? 90% of all long COVID cases start as mild upfront COVID. Nine out of 10. Having severe acute COVID upfront increases your odds of getting long COVID. However, overall, the overwhelming majority of long COVID cases start with mild cases. Continuing, that was nearly 10 months ago and I'm still experiencing issues. Last fall, I went on a jog and started having a hard time breathing. I had jogged this route so many times and previously hadn't felt as out of breath or tired as I did that day. As I was running, I kept feeling like I couldn't take a deep breath, but rather many shallow breaths trying to accommodate my lungs. I actually wasn't sure if I would be able to make it back to my house without first napping on the sidewalk. 
I was telling someone about the experience and they asked me if I had long COVID. It never occurred to me, but I brought the incident up at my next pulmonology visit. My pulmonologist uttered the words long COVID and I was so confused. I didn't understand how could I have long COVID when my case was mild. So again, these are the misconceptions that are out there that are being fostered. I mean, they're not being helped at all by the CDC that is not doing their job and educating people on the subject. I essentially have inflammation in my lungs. If I had to describe the feeling, I would equate it to an elephant sitting on my chest. There's a pressure in my chest where it feels like no matter how hard I try, I am unable to take a deep breath. My breath will only go so far before I have to force a deep breath. I don't experience my symptoms on a regular basis. One day, I could be feeling great. And then the next, I feel winded from going up the stairs or walking from room to room in my house. At times, I have to stop and catch my breath, which is frustrating because I'm 31 and fairly active. You know, at 31, you're still expecting to have a reasonable energy level. You know, you're not uh, 18 anymore, but you're not like 81 either. Whether or not I'll be able to breathe is factored into my plans and decisions now. It is scary. And there's a picture of Hannah. All right, next case. Uh, Bin, 31. I've been dealing with long COVID for three years now. So like I said, for a lot of people it lasts like six to 12 months, but for some people it keeps lasting. I can't believe it's been that long. It started back in 2020 with three months of severe fatigue, meaning I couldn't even get out of bed and walk to the kitchen without being out of breath. I suddenly started having migraines regularly. I lost my sense of taste and smell. I was severely sensitive to light, and I had to spend the majority of my time in a dark room with all the lights and screens off or dimmed with extra filters. These symptoms seem to come and go, but even in the best of times, I'm nowhere near the level of health that I was pre-COVID. Once a crash or a relapse hits, I'm often stuck in this phase, phase for at least two to three months. I may have days where I'm feeling energetic, but even at that point, my ability to accomplish things and function is just a very small percentage of my day. If I continue to push instead of rest, I end up with severe tremors, a stutter that makes it nearly impossible to communicate, and I need to use a walker. Is a 51-year-old. Once I ended up in the hospital for a week, unable to walk unassisted or speak clearly when I pushed too hard and didn't rest. I was healthy before COVID. I rarely ever got sick, and when I did, I was better within just a few days. Even if I got a horrible flu, I would be sick for a week and then it was over. That's all gone now. And to be clear, because people always comment on it, this happened long before I ever got a vaccine. I was struggling with long COVID symptoms for a year before I finally got the vaccine. And there was a video, but there were, um, it wasn't rendering, so I, I didn't get a screenshot of it. So just to reinforce that point about the vaccine, what we actually know about the vaccine is not only did long COVID start before the vaccines were even a thing, because remember, they weren't a thing for over a year initially. They got rolled out in early 2021 with a lot of people not even getting them till like April or later. All right. What we know from studies that we've covered on this channel is that the vaccines reduce your odds of getting long COVID, not the opposite. So this is completely anti-scientific bunk that is being uh, spread when people say it's vaccine side effects. Um, that's not to say that there isn't any possible side effect of the vaccine. There can be. There's a risk of using any medicine. It 
some people react badly. That said, it is not the cause of long COVID as the general phenomenon we're seeing. Next up, Jennifer Vilches, 29. Prior to this illness, I was super healthy. I was a sprinter, a showcasing artist. I worked a job I really loved and had endless energy. I have had long COVID for a year now, and it is absolutely horrifying and has changed my life completely. Feels like something completely evil latching onto you and never letting you go. You feel like you permanently have a hangover mixed with fatigue and severe dizziness. You live in fear each moment because of the uncertainty of how severe a symptom will get before you need to take yourself to the hospital. There are days where it feels like my brain is fried and I cannot recall things as normally as I would. It has robbed my ability to live in peace, to enjoy life with my family and friends, and it hurts to see those you love also become anxious. I even made an art piece dedicating it to all of the COVID long haulers out there. Well, as somebody who's experienced that, thank you, Jennifer. Um, I like that painting, actually. So, uh, moving on. Devin Russell, 37. Long COVID has been a roller coaster of shifting symptoms, from an upset gastrointestinal system to cognitive issues to inflammation and pain to nervous system problems. It's beaten me up in every way. Some of the most prominent symptoms I've had are the cognitive dysfunction, which at one point bordered on delirium or dementia type experiences, putting keys in the fridge, forgetting people's names, not being able to recall words mid-sentence. That would happen to me a lot. Like I would have a thought and um, it was just like a hand came out of nowhere and just yanked the thought away, leaving no trace. And I would just be like, I have no idea what I'm thinking about. Now that happens to everybody sometimes, but it doesn't happen to most people every five minutes. So anyway, um, just completely out of it. Like my head was empty. Now, let me also expand on that. Actually, with one of the other articles we we're going to do, I'm just going to mention it here. Um, long COVID has weird symptoms. Face blindness may be one of them. Okay, this is from USA Today, Karen Weintraub from today. Early in the pandemic, a 28-year-old customer service representative and portrait painter, portrait painter, faces are important, caught COVID-19. She had a high fever for a few days and trouble breathing. Her sense of smell and taste disappeared. But by mid-April 2020, she had recovered enough to start working from home. It wasn't until June when she saw her family for the first time since her illness that she realized she'd lost something else. She could no longer recognize her own father or distinguish him from her uncle. Quote, my dad's voice came out of a stranger's face, she told researchers. So this is face blindness. People who cognitively are unable to place or recognize faces. That's the depth of some of the cognitive dysfunction that this virus can cause. That's how much it's affecting your brain. Whether it's through direct infection, we know that the brainstem can get infected, or whether it's from a general infection causing inflammation responses in the brain, it is disrupting brain function with cognitive, you know, thought-based um, effects. So anyway, back to our article here. I feel like that was a um, appropriate time to mention that. The Guillain-Barre syndrome type symptoms I had were awful as well. I remember Thanksgiving 2020, I was unable to drive to see my family because I could barely move. I was just lying there concentrating on my breathing as I felt I had to remind my body to do so. 
My arms and legs especially were not completely under my control. Vomiting was another issue I had for a while. I had to be really careful what I ate, and even then it didn't always matter. I lost 28 pounds at one point, down from a slightly low weight already, so he was very underweight. I still have up and down days without the downs being as extreme as they used to be, but significant enough to restrict me, so his life is still impacted by that. Marguerite Stevenson, 28. Physically, it's awful. I know it has started when suddenly my heart rate increases and intensifies, and it won't slow down for weeks. Recently, it has started to ease down to several days. I constantly feel like I'm about to have a heart attack. Sleep is impossible because my heart is always racing. I feel a fundamental fatigue that emanates from my nerves. Making a cup of tea feels about as difficult as lifting a Ford pickup truck. In the shower, I have to lean on the wall or sit down because I'm too tired and dizzy to make it through. A short walk is impossible, both because I'm too exhausted to make it and because vertigo has betrayed me. Everything around me constantly twists and loses its stability. Only, I know it isn't the world around me that's changed, it's me. I look fine, but I'm physically crippled. There's no apparent reason why. Only this way of living was completely alien to me until I caught that virus. The only constant through this is my heart pounding through my body, reminding me it is keeping me alive. Like I said, physically it's bad, but mentally it might be worse. My mind is the one thing I have always been able to rely upon. But when the fatigue that controls every aspect of my physical existence returns to my body, it rains over my mind too. There's a fog I cannot penetrate. I can't remember what happened to me yesterday. What made me so happy in that conversation with, who was that again? I'm slow now. The connections I used to be able to make so quickly, the things that made me love philosophy, and those late-night conversations on politics and religion and what this whole life thing is all about, where those connections that once were, oh, sorry, where those connections once were is now a tired, empty fog. I used to be able to think, I remember. But what did I ever think about? I used to be someone, I just don't remember who. I'm one of the lucky ones. Eventually, the fog lifts from my brain and body, and I'm back to normal for a while, until it comes back again. My greatest hope now is that the waves will continue to slow down and soften, and one day they just won't come back at all. Last screen. Uh, Cigna Redfield, 52. When I have chest tightness and inflammation, I can't take a deep breath. I haven't been able to yawn since I got COVID, so when I need to yawn, I stand like Supergirl in a vain attempt to get air deeper into my chest. It's so hard to describe the crushing fatigue. It's like the third day of the flu when your leg muscles are jelly. It's like taking an old-school antihistamine where 20 minutes later you're fast asleep, drooling into your plate because you just couldn't keep your eyes open. It's like the first time you take muscle relaxants and your whole body feels a hundred times as heavy as usual. And your brain stops working when you're vertical. Every neuron is focused entirely on managing your muscles so you don't fall down. So even if you can think when you're lying down, standing up makes it impossible to do anything other than obsess over how not to be standing anymore. I didn't start getting noticeably better until I rested enough for the fatigue to go away. And even now, it comes back if I overdo it. My movement can get jerky. I couldn't figure out how to control my muscles smoothly. Certain movements triggered bad symptoms. Anything that involved bending over or twisting to lift things caused a feeling like something in my body and or brain was slipping, like a bicycle chain slipping a gear. I've had so many kinds of headaches. 
the little stabby ones that feel like someone's sticking a small knife into your skull that only lasts a few minutes, the ones that feel like your entire sinuses are raw, the migraines, the stabbing pain down the back of your neck. The recovery process is the weirdest. It's the slowest thing I've ever experienced. Pregnancy takes nine months, but you get growth spurts and pauses. With long COVID, it's like every minute, every hour, every day is like a wily Coyote cartoon. Everything's fine, and then a group of symptoms hits you like an anvil dropping on you. Over time, you start noticing you can do more for the same level of symptoms, or maybe one symptom is getting noticeably better than it was three months or a year ago. I measured in how much work I was able to do. It took months of rest and pacing and gentle adaptive activity to go from five hours of work a day or five and a half hours of work a day, without making my physical and cognitive symptoms worse. So it took months of uh, rehabilitation just to get to five, uh, from five hours of work a day to five and a half hours of work a day. Multitasking was gone. I went from transcribing stream of consciousness notes in meetings without shorthand to not being able to hear what my husband was saying while I was composing a test. Composing a text, sorry, the text is really small. It was like the buffer was gone. I'd reach back into my short-term memory buffer of what he'd been saying and find it full of static. I can relate to that just, again, just like there being a cloud. Like, you would just go to that part of your brain that normally has that supply of thoughts you're looking for, and it's either empty or clouded. If you look at your symptoms this month and last month, it's really almost impossible to tell whether you're getting better or worse, unquote, because it's just progressing so slowly. So I think we'll leave it there for Long COVID Awareness Day. I just want to mention there was another article that I had pulled, which is, where did I put it? I don't even know if I had it. So, okay, good thing we're, uh, we're leaving it behind, actually. So let's go into the chat for a minute just to discuss that, and then we will get into our China articles for today. Let's see. Okay, found found the chat. Study is necessary to learn the nece- uh, so uh, let's try that again. Study is to learn the necessary lessons and to not make mistakes from the past movements. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, as a dyslexic, I appreciate your time reading theory immeasurably. You're welcome. To be honest, I didn't you know start out necessarily thinking about that. But uh, again, I was just, hey, I need to read. Let's, uh, you know, I was posting a lot of memes at the time. And I was like, you know, let's get into the theory. Let's try to actually expand beyond memes. And it's grown into this whole thing. And I love it. And I appreciate people showing up. But um, remember, you know, remember the human, as they say on Reddit, for real. All right. They don't believe that, though. They think that the vaccine has microchips and 5G in it. Yeah, I mean, they believe like a hodgepodge of different things. So it kind of depends on the individual. But I hear I hear what you're saying. I am providing psychotherapy to someone who has long COVID. It is such a baffling set of symptoms and impairments. Take care out there. Yeah, don't get COVID. Because the only real way to avoid long COVID, for sure, is to avoid short COVID. Mask. Vaccines are the backup plan, 
but in N95, we trust, or P100, or whatever you're using. For COVID to mutate into something inert, it would take every single strain to do so at once, or in a relatively short period of time. Yeah, um, this thing is spreading globally. It's mutating in all kinds of ways, and you know, circulating around the world. So there's multiple strains running at one time. Even if one strain did that, you've got many other strains going. Again, the volume of COVID is just massive. We are finally, if you go to Biobot, I don't have a current um, biobot.io slash data, D-A-T-A. Um, you can get the uh, wastewater measurement. That's the kind of surefire way to tell how much COVID is going on. Um, out there. And I didn't pull a screenshot for today. It is coming down though slightly. It's at the lowest point currently that it has been at since about this time last year. But it's been above this level for the entire past 12 months, maybe 13 months. And it's probably going to start going back up again before too long because right now it's not quite spring yet. But in another month, um, you know, the southern half of the U.S. is going to be pretty, I mean, it's already pretty warm down in the far south. But, like, it's, it's going to be, you know, uh, where people start traveling more and doing more stuff and you're going to get a lot more spread. Um, winter will be really, really over. So, you know, this is just the, the amount of virus out there, the number of strains, it's huge. This isn't something where there's just like a few cases there are just millions of cases and, um, you know, a week, like in, in one particular country. So, uh, anyway, yeah, it's, we have no reason to believe it's going to go away on its own. My neighbor and her significant other both have a horrible, horrible cough since I moved in a month ago. They sound like tuberculosis patients. Waited 14 days, but then after that, gave them a jar of Korean citron jam that you can use as a tea, didn't help. Yeah, I mean, you, if you're going to do something like that, you need, like, pretty pretty major um, stuff. Like, folk remedies are not going to do much beyond, like, minor symptoms. Um, but, uh, yeah, it didn't help. I feel so sorry for them. Yeah, I mean, their odds of getting long COVID are probably pretty high if, if that's dragging on like that. All right, thank you for stopping by to the person who had to run. My government just yesterday, Greece dropped every measure against COVID except masking in hospitals. Uh, FFP2, not obligatory. So that would be like the European equivalent of an N95, roughly. And uh, so you just have to wear like a mask. You can basically just like take a napkin, tape it to your face. That counts. Um, nice way to celebrate long COVID awareness day. It's depressing as hell. So somebody says, listening to this, holy cow, that's me. I may have long COVID. Can neurologists find out if I have long COVID or not? Not currently. Um, so we did a story a while back. There, there are researchers looking for biomarkers of, um, of long COVID. So they found in a study out of Boston that 60% of people who had long COVID um, had the spike protein in their blood. 40% they didn't have it or it couldn't be detected. Then there was a control group of people who had had a COVID infection but didn't get long COVID. Zero percent of them had the spike protein. So it seems like in a majority of cases, it supports the idea that it is a lingering infection. 
Now, I've heard some people saying that Paxlovid helps with this. I've heard some people saying that um, getting the Novavax vaccine uh, helps to eradicate that lingering infection. My advice to you, this is like cutting edge stuff. No one really knows for sure yet. Um, get, uh, if you're not on Twitter, get on Twitter. There is, um, you know, look for hashtags long COVID. Um, if you want to DM me, I can point you to a few people that I follow. There is a sort of long COVID Twitter of medical researchers and people who are, you know, immunologists and virologists and people who are still taking this seriously, but it's definitely more on the underground side. I mean, they're publishing their stuff, you know, it's not like suppressed in the sense where it's like illegal or it gets like deleted by Twitter, but it's not getting obviously promoted by the CDC as the urgent crisis that it is. That said, there are researchers posting about long COVID and things like that. I would also point you to a channel. I haven't actually looked at it in a while, but Gez, G-E-Z, Medinger, M-E-D-I-N-G-E-R. Um, they were doing a lot of interesting long COVID stuff um, on their channel. So even if you just put G-E-Z, long COVID into a YouTube search, you'd probably find it. Uh, but yeah, like the, the semi-underground uh, or at least informal network of like long COVID Twitter is probably where you're going to find like the most you know, studies shared and things like that. It's where I go for a lot of the um, long COVID update stuff that I do here on the channel. Um, they may be able to run a sort of like immune panel to see what's going on with your immune system. But as far as I know, there's still not a biomarker for long COVID and even getting doctors to take it seriously is, is difficult. But yeah, if you want to message me, I can point you to a few people that you might want to start reading. I feel this so hard. By 6 p.m., I'm basically crashing, and when I barely did anything throughout the day, I feel like an old person, and I'm only 28. It may be long COVID. I mean, you know, these things can happen for a variety of reasons. Um, but, you know, if this developed two or three months after a COVID infection, I would definitely consider long COVID. Um... Somebody else says, I was able to see a neurologist for this exact reason about a year ago. And at least for me, that specific neurologist has waved away the possibility of long COVID as if it weren't even real. That's incredibly irresponsible. I'm not saying others will be just like that one, but that was my experience, unfortunately. Yep. Um, that's not uncommon. I mean, if you find a doctor that will actually take long COVID seriously, I almost feel like it's the exception. Anyway, the other person says, same thing, I'm just 19. Yeah, 19 should not normally be having those symptoms, for sure. Another comment, I have progressive MS. These symptoms sound just like me. Yeah, there's been um, comparisons done between long COVID symptoms and other um, similar kinds of diseases. And, you know, it's, it's inconclusive at this point. But we do know that other viruses can cause these types of debilitating conditions. And it's, you know, very far from science fiction to think that SARS coronavirus 2 could be causing them. Like, it's well established <laughs> that various viruses can cause these kinds of uh, conditions. So why wouldn't this one be able to? I mean, it's at least a possible, it's an established possibility. Uh, I had some long COVID and it was hell 
training up new technicians. I would have the word in my head, but it just wouldn't come out as speech. And yes, most doctors are ignorant assholes. I agree. It's not to, you know, disrespect medical knowledge, but as far as putting it into practice in a compassionate, socially conscious, and, um, you know, uh, way that respects people's dignity and humanity, a lot of doctors have a lot of fucking work to do. All right. So when I said, okay, so the comment, since we don't know the mechanisms involved for long COVID, we can't say for sure that any folk medicine would not help. What I'm saying is that probably a lot of the things people are doing, like drinking lemon tea with honey and other sort of very common sort of food grade stuff, that is very unlikely to make a difference on something with a persistent viral reservoir that the body is unable to fight off, apparently, in some cases, for a year or longer. That's not to say that there aren't, um, you know, plant-based compounds and things that may be helpful. In China, they, um, you know, give people the Western stuff and they also give them traditional stuff as well. And it can help with the inflammation and this and that. What I'm saying is that's not going to be the kind of stuff most people are going to have sort of in their kitchen cabinet. So that that's more what I'm saying. All right. Um, let's get in, speaking of China, hey, unintentional segue, let's go on to our first article, which is a long one, but I think worth it. Um, is this the one? No, this is the second one. We want int, the international role of China. So, you know, for a long time, I've been fending off thoughts on China when that comes up in the, uh, in the chat. Today we're going to get into it, and I hope that I can cover all this in adequate time. I may not be able to, um, we're already uh, like three hours into stream time here, so I got maybe another hour. Um, I may not be able to stick around for <clears throat> chat. We can certainly pick it up in the next stream and in the comments, but let's just dive in. As I've said, you know, my standing position on China is I see calls for concern, plenty of it. I see also calls for hope that what's, you know, the socialist project in China, which has a rich history that involves, has involved many of the people um, who have lived in China and are still living in China. Uh, there's some hope that it can be put back on track. There's also a lot of concern that the direction that they're headed in is um, doing, you know, really significant harm. So anyway, this is The International Role of China by Alicios Vaganis, member of the CC of KKE, Greek Communist Party, responsible for the international section of the CC. This was published in Communist Review, uh, sixth issue of 2010. So this is, you know, uh, over a decade old, and it's sort of written during China's rise, which I think was a very unexpected thing for a lot of people, that China would come to be this major, major power um, from, you know, this very backward um, rural agrarian, which it still is in places, um, very large country, um, to sort of, you know, providing a lot of labor for Western capitalists and then rising to the kind of position of being the second largest economy as it is, and so on. And so a lot of people are, you know, speculating heavily 
on where is this going next. This article comes from a bit before that, you know, uh, so anyway, let's take a look. The rise of a new global power, China, has provoked a great deal of interest from analysts and ordinary workers all over the world. This interest is even more intense among politicized people who understand the Arab social revolutions which began with October 1917 in Russia and which led to a series of important socio-political struggles and revolutions in the entire world, among them the Chinese Revolution. The interest concerning the rise in China's power is contradictory, as the increase of its power is taking place under the red flag and with the Communist Party of China in power. Nevertheless, one of the lessons of the counter-revolution in the Soviet Union is that communists should not have accepted unquestioningly whatever the CPSU said, but that every communist party, while remaining true to the principle of proletarian internationalism, should study with its own resources the developments, the experience of the international communist movement, and must attempt to form its own opinion concerning these things, utilizing Marxist-Leninist theory as its tool. And as we said before, Marxism is not an identity. It is a set of tools for conducting social analysis and understanding historical development. The KKE reserves its right of criticism within the international communist movement with the aim of strengthening it and the strategy of the communists. The KKE confronts deviations from the principles of Marxism-Leninism and the laws of socialist construction while maintaining bilateral relations with communist parties which have different approaches. So common. In other words, this is a good faith criticism, which is intended to further communist construction and the path towards socialism. If a party gets off track and another party feels like they have an informed opinion about that, it is our duty to speak up because we don't want to be modeling our struggle off of revisionism. And so if that creeps in, it is the duty. We saw what happened in the Soviet Union. Things can get badly derailed. And we don't want to see that happen. We want to see socialism. So on this basis, the KKE, while it continues to maintain bilateral relations with the Communist Party of China, systematically follows developments and forms its own assessments, which it expresses both publicly and to the Communist Party of China. As is well known, the KKE already from its 17th Congress in 2005 noted the expansion of capitalist relations in China. In the period since then, this tendency has been reinforced and is even more evident. So in other words, <clears throat> they noticed the capitalist expansion then, and it's only become more profound since then. Developments concerning the international position of China in the economy. The increase of China's economic power is unquestionable. It is widely considered that China has overtaken Japan and is now the second largest economy in the world after the USA, while in 2010 it outstripped Germany and became the largest exporter in the world. During the period January to October 2009, China exported products worth $957 billion. Exports make up 80% of the state's transactions. China exports 50,000 different types of products to 182 countries, while 80 of these countries have signed trade agreements and protocols of cooperation with it. The basic trading partners of China are the major capitalist countries, Japan, USA, the EU countries, which account for 55% or a majority of its foreign trade transactions. A fact which reflects the changes which have taken place over the last 20 years is that although in 1993 China exported oil, today it is compelled not just to import it, but in 2009 the amount of oil it imported was comparable globally to the USA. 
In 2010, China acquired the second place globally after the USA in the list of billionaires per country, 130, the fortunes of whom have increased by 222% within a year. It is also estimated that the 1,000 richest people in China increased their wealth within a year by 30% from $439 billion to $571 billion. We could also compare these statistics to others which demonstrate the misery and exploitation which hundreds of millions of workers experience in modern China as a result of the policy of enrich yourselves, which the CPC has openly followed for 30 years. We will mention the following according to the estimates of the Association of Chinese Businessmen, as was shown on Chinese television. 8.5% of the 500 largest monopolies in the world are Chinese, 43 companies. At this moment, American monopolies have double the size of profits in comparison to the Chinese, but the trend is for Chinese monopolies individually to be more profitable and to have a faster rate of accumulation than American ones. The official statistics also show that in the period from 2004 to 2010, the number of private, uh, private companies in China increased by 81%, while today the number of private businesses in China has reached 3 I don't know why they didn't just do billion. Uh, 3,596,000,000. Uh, uh, there we go. The profits of the 500 largest private corporations increased by 23.27% in 2009. At the same time, these corporations operating alongside Chinese state monopolies have increased international competition. 117 of these companies participated in 481 investment plans abroad, where they invested um, $225 billion, $270 million. In total, Chinese direct investments globally in 2009 came to 56... Oh, you know what's throwing me off here? My bad. I was misreading some of those numbers. They're using the European Convention of Commas for Decimals, and that just was not in my brain. So the previous number was 3,596 uh, million and uh, so on. So anyway, they invested $225.27 million. Okay. In total, Chinese direct investments globally in 2009 came to $56.53 billion, 5.1% of global investments, placing China in fifth place in the list of global investors. The rise of China's economic power prompted a series of international banks in June 2010, such as HSBC, Deutsche Bank, Citigroup, to push businesses to use the Chinese yuan instead of the dollar for their transactions. At the same time, in September 2010, China increased its acquisition of American bonds by $3 billion, reaching $86.7 billion, and maintained its position ahead of Japan as the largest foreign holder of U.S. bonds. In addition, it signed an agreement with the International Monetary Fund, IMF, in order to buy bonds worth $50 billion. Another noteworthy feature is China's desire to control as many natural resources as possible, which are increasingly controlled by the Chinese corporations. Africa is at the center of this activity. The following is particularly characteristic. In the 1990s, Chinese trade in Africa as a whole was about 5 to $6 billion dollars. By 2003, this had increased to $18 billion, and in 2008, it reached $100 billion. Today, China has a significant economic presence in nearly all the African countries. In the Copper Belt of Zambia and the Democratic Republic of Congo, DRC, 
there exists the fastest growing Chinatown in the world. Sudan has become one of the main suppliers of oil to the Chinese market. 600,000 barrels of Sudanese oil are sent to China on a daily basis. A third of all China's imports come from Africa, with Angola, Equatorial Guinea, and Sudan being the largest suppliers. In addition, Chad, Nigeria, Algeria, and Gabon supply China with oil. In exchange for the access to the natural resources of the African countries, China Sorry, that needs a comma. Of the African countries, China invests in road infrastructure and ports, in infrastructure necessary for the reproduction of labor power, such as school buildings, hospitals, and housing, as well as in industrial infrastructure in these countries. Chinese companies are building roads in Angola and Mozambique, as well as upgrading their ports and railways. Chinese companies are also involved in many projects in Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, and in Nairobi, Kenya. Peking's quest for raw materials is not restricted to Africa, but extends to less distant regions. It has significant investments in mining and other natural resources in Myanmar, timber, precious stones. According to the Minister of National Planning and Development of Myanmar, direct foreign investments in the economic year 2008-2009 were six times greater in comparison to the previous year, from $173 to $985 million. 87% of these investments being Chinese. According to some estimates, about 90% of Myanmar's economy is supported by Chinese capital. Chinese companies are active in the Middle East, especially in Iran, where an investment in the construction of only one industrial complex for the production of aluminum, for the production of 110,000, is estimated to reach $516 million. Iran competes with Saudi Arabia, as an oil supplier to China. Another important supplier of oil to China is Venezuela. China has invested $2 billion for the development of oil extraction in this country. In 2004, Venezuela sold 12,000 barrels of oil a day to China. In 2006, it sold 200,000 barrels a day, and it is planned that this will increase to 500,000 barrels by 2011. This oil will be sent to China after it has been processed in a new plant especially designed for Venezuela's crude oil. It will pass through the Panama Canal, which is now controlled by Chinese business interests, and has been redesigned so that tankers from Venezuela can pass through in accordance with the Chinese investment plan. China, in order to bind Venezuela economically, signed commercial agreements worth $9 billion for the development of Venezuela's infrastructure, as well as in the sectors of mineral extraction, agriculture, and telecommunications. China was able to acquire significant access to natural resources in Siberia and Central Asia. In August 2010, they opened the pipeline which connects China to the natural wealth of eastern Siberia. Initially, China will import from Russia 15 million tons of oil annually, with a view to doubling this amount in the future. In addition, China was able to gain access to the natural gas gas of the Caspian Sea region by constructing a pipeline for Turkmenistan with a capacity of 30 billion cubic meters. At the same time, it is in nego- negotiations, I think that should be, with Russia's Gazprom for the construction of new, two new gas pipelines to transport 63 billion cubic meters annually, something which is the equivalent of the quantity of gas which is transported through South Stream from Russia to Southern Europe. In addition, it is estimated that China controls today 23% of petrol extracted in Kazakhstan. Increase in China's military strength. In recent years, China, like other imperialist countries, 
has proceeded to strengthen its armed forces significantly. Today, the Chinese armed forces are the most numerous in the world, with 2.3 million troops. Nevertheless, as is well known, what is important today is not the size of the army, but the acquisition of modern weapon systems and flexible, well-armed military forces. In 2010, China increased its military expenditure by 7.5%, reaching 532.1 billion yuan, or 77.9 billion U.S. dollars, which is about 25% more than the annual expenditure of Russia, and 10 times less than that of the USA. I can just say from looking at charts, this has grown significantly since then. But it should be noted that the USA uh, estimates that the real amount which China will spend on the military in 2010 will be double and reach $150 billion, while it estimates that in a period of four years since 2006, Chinese military spending has quadrupled. Today, China possesses 434 nuclear warheads, 1,500 ballistic missiles, most of which have a range of 2,800 kilometers, while 20 have a range of 4,750 kilometers, and four missiles with a range of 12,000 kilometers. It has the third most submarines in the world and is among the five countries in the world that possess nuclear submarines with ballistic missiles. In 2007, China shot down, with a missile, one of its own satellites, demonstrating that it has the capability to take action in space and is developing its own space program. Obviously, since 2010, this has all just continued. It still possesses 7,580 tanks and 144 warships, almost 1,700 fighter planes, 500 of which are fourth generation, and it will have fifth generation fighter planes in operation by 2018. It imports arms, but also manufactures dozens of modern weapons, buying up the patents of weapon systems and also by simply copying them. Soon, it will acquire its first aircraft carrier. According to the report of the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, China is second in the world in terms of its defense spending, the size of its armed forces, and their equipment. In conclusion, even if China cannot at the moment compare with the military power of the USA, even if it lags behind the USA concerning the question of a theoretical deterrent response to the nuclear first strike, a capability which Russia, for example, possesses, at the same time it has made notable progress in the field of military strength. This has not gone unnoticed by the USA. It is noted in reports of related authorities and in publications by their experts. Strengthening its presence in the international organizations. China is a member of the UN since its establishment and a permanent member of the Security Council. It has increased its economic contribution to the UN from 0.995% of the UN's budget in 2000 to 2.053% in 2006, while in 1988, it declared its availability to contribute to the UN's, quote, peacekeeping forces. Since then, it has taken part in dozens of UN peacekeeping missions in Liberia, Afghanistan, Kosovo, Haiti, Sudan, Lebanon, etc. And it maintains a peacekeeping force of over 6,000 troops. The defense minister of China in his speech noted that China in total participated during 2010 in 24 peacekeeping missions, involving 10,000 soldiers, and that it is the most active of the permanent members of the Security Council in peacekeeping missions. China, together with Russia and the Central Asian countries, formed in 2001 the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, SCO, which, although it carries out annually massive military exercises, is not considered to be a military bloc and chiefly promotes issues concerning the economic cooperation of countries in the region and its political security. 
This demonstrates the importance that China attaches to a region with massive natural wealth, such as Central Asia, which in the last 20 years has become a source of discord in the inter-imperialist rivalries. So like the USA, for example, definitely trying to get a piece of Central Asia. At the same time, China has been a member of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, or APEC, group since 1991, which was founded in 1989 at the initiative of Australia and New Zealand. 21 countries participate in APEC, while in these countries live 40% of the world's population, 54% of the world's GDP, and 44% of global trade is carried out. Finally, it has participated in the fora of the most advanced capitalist countries at the G8 as an observer and at the G20 as a full member. And at the same time, without any specific organization having been formed, it cooperates with the BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, which seek their upgrading within the international correlation of forces. So side note, we covered BRICS, which now includes South Africa, uh, in a few streams back. Just scroll back, you can find it. BRICS was proposed uh, at Goldman Sachs as basically an emerging market investment scheme for Western capital. There's nothing to do with socialism whatsoever. Um, continuing, these countries closely coordinate their interventions in the G20, while at the same time they also try to coordinate their activity in the UN. Assessments concerning the position and role of China in the international imperialist system concerning its economic position. One, China, particularly from the 1980s and onwards, so this is after the uh, market reforms of Deng Xiaoping and the dismantling of some of the socialist programs and uh, substitution with capitalist uh, programs, has linked its economy with the international capitalist market. This is a fact which is not denied by the Chinese leadership, but is indeed extolled by it. It participates actively in the global capitalist allocation of roles as a massive factory with a cheap labor force, with high rates of profits for those capitalists who have the ability to invest there. Two, as a result of this change in direction, China has been embraced by other strong imperialist powers, above all by the USA and also by Japan, the EU, due to its dependency on them as a global exporting power. It is an integral part of the international imperialist system. This relation of dependency and interdependency is expressed by the fact that China possesses American bonds. 3. As long as China strengthens economically, so will its needs for raw materials and fuels increase. For this reason, inter-imperialist competition over the control of the energy resources in Central Asia, the Middle East, Africa, and Latin America is sharpening at the global level. As Lenin wrote, quote, the capitalists divide the world, not out of any particular malice, but because the degree of concentration which has been reached forces them to adopt this method in order to obtain profits. And they divide it in proportion to capital, in proportion to strength, because there cannot be any other method of division under commodity production and capitalism. It's basically uh, might makes right you know, in proportion to capital and proportion to strength. But strength varies with the degree of economic and political development, unquote. The competition for the share of the markets is particularly fierce. This is demonstrated by the recent effort of political economical circles in the USA to push forward legislation which provides for sanctions against those countries which it considers that they artificially keep their currency undervalued in order for their exports to have competitive prices, in this way taking control of markets and removing their competitors. 
The following arguments are used to counter what has been outlined above. A. The argument that the USSR also had external economic relations. We should remind ourselves of the following. Over half the commercial transactions of the USSR were with other socialist countries of the Council of Mutual Economic Assistance. Almost a third of the USSR's transactions involved oil and natural gas, which it possessed in abundance, while the turn toward increasing its exports and developing its relations with the most developed countries occurred after the 1960s, guided by the opportunist viewpoint of so-called peaceful coexistence and peaceful competition. So comment, this was the point of view that the USSR, rather than, you know, continuing to wage a fierce struggle against imperialism for the eventual abolition of capitalism worldwide, could peacefully coexist uh, with imperialism. This was denounced, it was one of the factors in the Sino-Soviet split, or the Chinese, uh, China, almost said, anyway, the China-Soviet split, um, it was a factor, was the uh, Khrushchev revisionism, uh, so this this kind of thing. We'll be covering this in a entire segment that'll probably encompass like six months or more on the channel, but later on. Anyway, nevertheless, even then, the USSR never possessed one-third of the U.S. bonds, nor did it export capital, and so it never occurred to anyone that the USSR could buy the port of Piraeus and the Triasso. Sorry, I'm not familiar with that one. Thriasso? Tiraso? Facts which show the qualitative difference between China today and a socialist country like the USSR. Incidentally, by the way, when um, in the 80s, when the USSR relaxed the restrictions on foreign capital investing in USSR projects, even at a majority uh, stake, you know, a controlling share in the Soviet enterprises. I mean, literally the entire thing came unraveled like less than a decade later. So that was horrendous. Anyway, B, sometimes we hear from certain quarters that in contrast with other imperialist powers, China, with its investments in developing countries, does not seek the plundering of their natural resources, but the creation of infrastructure like roads, buildings, facilities, hospitals, schools, etc., the goal is, as the Chinese themselves claim, that these countries, quote, improve the development of their infrastructure and promote business cooperation. China implements special medical programs in developing countries, programs for the training of executives from these countries, for the reduction of the duties on the imports of the products of these countries into China, which absorbs 50.1% of all the imports from less developed countries to developed ones. And at the same time, it provides low interest loans. The above are presented by some as evidence that shows the difference between, quote, socialist China and other imperialist powers who aren't as sort of helpful in the development that they provide uh, while receiving the products from these countries. Even if we accept that there is a difference in the way that China operates in Africa, in Asia, etc., in comparison to other imperialist powers, something which is questionable since they develop similar humanitarian and educational programs in less developed countries, e.g. the EU up until 2008 was the largest aid sponsor and commercial partner in Africa, in essence, these measures do not alter the ultimate goal of China's activities. The goal is the facilitation of Chinese investments in these countries, the facilitation of the path of Chinese capital, which operates in these places. That is to say, 
What is the path of capital? The accumulation of more capital. This activity is assisted, e.g. when there is a modern infrastructure, roads, ports, airports, buildings, as well as infrastructure necessary for the education of the labor force, which is required for the businesses to function. The low-interest loans which are provided by the Chinese banks, or the absorption of the exports of these countries by China, aim at the safeguarding of more favorable conditions for the penetration of Chinese capital into these countries, as well as strengthening its relations with them, with an eye on co-opting them into a political alliance in the various international organizations, UN, World Trade Organization, etc., where, as we shall examine later, China is trying to lead a block of countries, together with other capitalist states, which seek to strengthen their international position. The Promotion of China as a Counterweight to the Imperialists The growing interest in China within the ranks of the international communist movement is related to whether the upheavals and changes in the correlation of forces, which have been caused by the rise of China at a regional and global level, could lead to the creation of a new counterweight to the imperialists, a role which was played by the USSR, a socialist country, in the past. Historical precedent. It is important to remind ourselves of certain facts from the past. As long as the Soviet Union existed, Chinese foreign policy was coordinated with that of the USA against the USSR. This stance initially was presented as criticism of the opportunist turn of the CPSU at its 20th Congress. Of course, we know today that in the beginning, the CPC did not actually differentiate its position, openly or in essence, from the directions of the 20th Congress of the CPSU. Its disagreement was published later, motivated by Sino-Soviet border disputes. The stance of the CPC had some impact on communist parties, due to the opportunist sliding of the USSR into positions concerning, quote, everlasting peace and competition with the imperialist powers within the framework of, quote, peaceful coexistence. Which, again, did the USA buy into peaceful coexistence? So why would you? Nevertheless, after the 20th Congress, the CPC did not restrict its criticism to the opportunist positions, but chose a strategy which, in practice, led on many occasions to a hostile stance in relation to the international communist movement and the USSR, and in coordination with the USA to a position against the interest of the Third Revolutionary Movement. Sorry, World Revolutionary Movement. The CPC proceeded on the basis of its analysis concerning the, quote, three worlds. The, quote, first world was made up of the, quote, superpowers. Indeed, the USSR was labeled a, quote, social imperialist power. The second world was made up of the wealthy allies of the superpowers, and the third world was made up of the developing countries, including China. A typical example is the attitude of China in relation to the internationalist assistance which the USSR gave to the People's Revolutionary State Power in Afghanistan. On this occasion, China was a part of the bloc of forces formed by the USA, together with Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, and others, bankrolling the most reactionary socio-political forces in Afghanistan, which were waging an armed struggle against the newly established people's government, which, talking about things like Mujahideen, later become uh, things like the CIA, manipulated Al-Qaeda, etc. In an article of the Washington Post of the 19th of July, 1992, concerning the tactics of the CIA in relation to Afghanistan in, that says 1890, but I think 1980, it is mentioned that China sold weapons to the CIA and donated a smaller number of weapons to Pakistan. 
At the same time, the article stresses, quote, to what extent China played a role constitutes one of the best kept secrets of the war. In this article, there were also references to the types of weapons that China gave for the strengthening of the counter-revolutionaries. Another characteristic example is the attitude of China to the struggling people of Vietnam during the period of its national liberation struggle. China rejected the proposals of the USSR for the organization of joint actions to support Vietnam. Quote, Peking rejected the proposals of the USSR to close the airspace of Vietnam to the American invaders. The leaders of China refused to provide airports in the south of the country for the stationing of Soviet military planes, which could have defended Vietnam. The Chinese authorities blocked the transportation of military equipment and experts from the USSR to the Democratic Republic of Vietnam, unquote. Later, just a few years after the liberation of the country from the imperialists on the 17th of February 1979, China unleashed a military attack against Vietnam. In February 1979, preceded the visit of the Chinese vice president, Deng Xiaoping, to Washington, who spoke of the need to, quote, give a bloody lesson to Vietnam, something which was applauded by the American politicians who promised the provision of weapons from Western countries. After 30 days fighting, the Chinese army of 600,000 troops, which had invaded Vietnam and lost 60,000 soldiers, about 300 tanks, and 100 pieces of heavy artillery and mortars, was forced to withdraw. As we know today, during this period, there were many contacts at various levels between China and the USA. On the 4th of November 1979, an official leaked document was published in the New York Times which mentioned that American military assistance to the People's Liberation Army of China was estimated at $50 billion in order to, as it noted, constitute an obstacle to the Red Army. In addition, when the Secretary of National Defense for Research and Engineering, William Perry, visited Peking in 1980, he informed the Chinese that the government of the USA, quote, approved the export of 400 license applications for various kinds of dual-purpose goods and military equipment. These include materials such as geophysical computers, heavy vehicles, C-130 transport planes, and Chinook helicopters. Another example is the position which China took concerning the civil war in Angola, where it supported economically and militarily the forces of reaction, which fought in a united front along with the racist armies of South Africa, which had invaded the People's Republic of Angola. The People's Republic of Angola was supported by weapons and military advisors from the USSR and by thousands of Cuban volunteers who fought voluntarily and contributed decisively to the crushing of the South African forces and the defeat of the domestic reactionary forces. As has been revealed today by the declassified documents of the CIA, during this period, there was a peculiar form of coordination between the USA and China, including even the military operations which were carried out in Angola. The situation today. Let's return to the present. Today, with the development and predominance of capitalist relations of production in China, with its participation in imperialist organizations such as the WTO, and its assimilation into the imperialist system, with its, uh, oops, sorry, wrong line, its stance does not differ from that of the imperialist powers. Whatever disagreements it has with the USA are related to the division of the loot, while there exists harmony over the question of labor rights, which are being reduced for the good of the market economy, and also against states whose actions offend any of the leading imperialist powers' monopolies. One example is the attitude of China concerning the nuclear program of Iran, 
As we know, China has developed a close economic cooperation with Iran, which is one of its basic suppliers of oil. Despite this cooperation, in September 2010, China, as well as Russia, joined together with the USA, France, Germany, and Great Britain, the group of six, on the question of Iran's nuclear program, demanding that Iran back down and accept the conditions of the UN Security Council concerning its nuclear program. Earlier in June of 2010, China had agreed in the UN Security Council to new sanctions against this country. A second example is the stance of China in relation to Kosovo. Even if China and other imperialist powers have not yet officially recognized Kosovo, it is worth noting that in the UN Security Council, it did not have a consistent and decisive position against the NATO assault in the Balkans, while it abstained from the voting on the peacekeeping mission, in which NATO plays the leading role, the notorious KFOR, and later it participated in the NATO occupation by sending police forces. Um, Let's continue. I have another comment. Furthermore, in 2010, we had the despicable decision of the International Court in The Hague, which stated that Kosovo's declaration of independence was not in violation of international law. Some judges held a different position concerning this very important decision. Thus, the judges from Russia, Slovakia, Brazil, and Morocco were against the legitimization of Kosovo, which was supported by judges from the USA, Japan, Germany, France, Britain, Mexico, New Zealand, Sierra Leone, Somalia, and Jordan. As it is mentioned in the published documents, the Chinese judge did not take part in this very important decision that seeks to change the borders in the Balkans, opening up a Pandora's box for the instigation of other controversies related to national minorities because of procedural matters. This was followed by the appeal of Albania to Peking to recognize the independence of Kosovo and to use its influence in the UN Security Council so that other member states support its recognition. A third example is the visit of China's Prime Minister Wang Jiabao to Greece in October 2010. In his speech to the Greek Parliament, the Chinese Prime Minister stated that China plays, uh, China supports a stable euro. Whenever we get this late into the stream, we get some uh, reading difficulties. But anyway, China supports a stable euro because, quote, we have the belief that a united and strong Europe can play an irreplaceable role in the world's development, unquote, and added that he felt, quote, joy when he saw Greece escaping from the shadow of its foreign debt, reducing its deficit, and opening up prospects for, for its economic development. In these two phrases, the Prime Minister of China and full member of the PB of the CC of the Communist Party of China managed to support, uh, managed to summarize the support of his country's leadership for the European Imperialist Center of the EU and for the Social Democratic Government of PASOK, which under the pretext of reducing the deficit is implementing a harsh anti-people program in order to reduce the cost of labor power in Greece. The Chinese leadership, oh, and let me just add, <clears throat> on the subject of um, sanctions that they were talking about before, I was uh, surprised, I was digging into this some, um, was previously unaware of Chinese support for sanctions against North Korea as well. They wanted it to be done more humanely, but they were supporting the sanctions. Interesting. Um, anyway, continuing, the Chinese leadership signed a raft of agreements with the Greek government, which will constitute a source of profits for certain sections of Greece's plutocracy, and nothing more. The notorious Chinese investment of $5 billion is nothing more than a shot in the arm for Greek ship owners, which serves the shipbuilding industry of China, as well as its goal for further penetration to the European market through Greece. 
the related construction, use, and operation of ports and railway lines, as well as shipbuilding infrastructure by Chinese monopolies and certain Greek companies, will sharpen uneven development at the expense of the needs of the people. The expansion and strengthening of the activity of capital and crucial infrastructure, in combination with anti-people policies, has led to even cheaper workers with reduced labor rights and wages. The olive oil exports will benefit only the big businessmen who control them, and not the poor farmers, whose position is continually deteriorating. Nevertheless, this visit was utilized by the social democratic, in quotes, PASOK government with the aim of making the popular strata believe that thanks to the Chinese investments, as well as those of Qatar, Israel, etc., there will be development and consequently the GDP will increase. So basically, rising tide lifts all boats thinking, and so will the crumbs which fall from the table of the capitalists to the people trickle down. In reality, of course, we we're talking about the prospect of a capitalist exit from the crisis. Remember, we're talking about 2008, 2009, 2010, global financial meltdown, which will not reduce development in favor of big capital, nor the poverty and unemployment of the people. We're talking about development which undermines the productive capabilities of our country and involves it in dangerous imperialist rivalries. In any case, we certainly cannot speak about the internationalist contribution of China to the struggle of the Greek people. Finally, the Communist Party of China may for the time being maintain its title as a, quote, communist party. Nevertheless, it is well known that it has developed close links with the Socialist International. In 2009, the CPC organized in Peking a joint seminar with the Socialist International with the theme, A Different Development Model, that of a green economy. In his speech there, the president of PASOK and the Socialist International, G. Papandreou, expressed, quote, the desire of the international to further enhance relations between the two sides, which is proved by today's seminar, unquote. The question of the, quote, wider cooperation within the framework of the Socialist International was also discussed during the meeting between PASOK and the CPC in July 2010. In 2009, the book China is Not Happy, which deals with China's position in the world, was released in China. In three months, it had sold 700,000 copies and many millions more afterwards. Amongst other things, it notes, quote, We are the most suitable people to undertake the world's leadership. Since, as it argues, China manages global natural resources more efficiently than any other country, it should undertake global leadership. In other words, they are the best capitalists. It is also noted that the Chinese army should def defend the sovereignty of the country outside of its borders, direct to countries where China has, quote, fundamental interests and defend them. So how is that different from the USA? That is to say, it proposes the mobilization of the Chinese army in the places where Chinese capital is active. We should remind ourselves that China plays an active role in the so-called war against piracy. In the joint statement signed between the Greek government and China during the recent visit of the Chinese Prime Minister to Greece, the Greek government thanked China for the protection of Greek ships in Somali waters by the Chinese Navy, attempting to control important military international naval passages. In the aforementioned books, there is a discussion concerning the, quote, need for living space, Lebensraum. I know a guy with a little mustache who was a big fan of that for China, and it was pointed to the vast... Uh, it is pointed to the vast expanses of Siberia, which, quote, must be cultivated by the great Chinese people. It goes without saying that such a book uh, could not be released in China today without the approval of the CPC. For whoever doubts that, they only have to look 
at what the organ of the CC of the CPC, People's Daily, wrote, quote, apparently China is ready to place the Russian Far East under its own fundamental influence, but in such a way so as not to alarm Moscow. The strength of this influence will not be based on a large-scale influx of Chinese settlers, but the sudden Chinization of Russians. One fine day, there will be a serious crisis, and in the face of the weakened political and military influence of Moscow, these Russians may turn to Peking and not to their own government. In such a hypothetical situation, the Russian Far East could become a province of China, unquote. In line with the above, we should remind ourselves that at the beginning of August 2010, the representative of the Ministry of Defense of Vietnam, uh, Nguyen Thuong Nga, hope that was close, made the following statement, quote, Vietnam demands that China immediately cease its violations of Vietnam's sovereignty. In the South China Sea, where there are energy deposits, there have emerged gray zones and regions of disputed sovereignty. Of course, within the framework of competition emerged both axes of cooperation and anti-axes. So we can see that the Prime Minister of Italy, Berlusconi, who habitually refers to every political opponent with a grave accusation of communist, has no problem in lighting up the Colosseum in Rome with communist red colors in honor of the Chinese prime minister who visited the Eternal City, aiming at doubling trade between the two countries to $100 billion by the year 2015, as well as at the, quote, development of ports and other investments as they're seeking a strategic gateway into Europe few more screens left to go. Cooperation with Russia, India, and Brazil in order to change the balance of forces in the international organizations. In recent years, China has developed coordination and cooperation with states which seek to upgrade their international position. Brazil, Russia, India, known as BRIC, as well as partnerships and alliances in regional unions, such as the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, together with Russia and the Central Asian former Soviet republics. Can these alliances and partnerships be considered as a blow against the, quote, unipolar world of the USA. So here we're questioning multipolarity. It's a good thing to do. First of all, we must make it clear that a, quote, unipolar world does not exist and has never existed. There's always existed a differentiation between, or sorry, within the international imperialist system, with the USA acquiring first place in the immediate post-war period and leading the struggle against socialism, in which the USSR played the leading role. The struggle between NATO, OECD, and the Warsaw Pact, Council of Mutual Economic Assistance, was a class struggle. So this is, again, commenting when campism was valid, when you actually had some basis for saying these are socialist countries led by a different class, the proletariat, than the imperialist countries led by the capitalist class. To that extent, for a time, while those countries existed before they fell into counter-revolution, then the campism... Uh, was somewhat valid. And that goes back to Stalin's 1919 article. We have it on the channel, Two Camps, about the end of World War I, the SSRs were emerging, now you have the socialist camp and the capitalist camp. Well, that doesn't apply when they're all capitalist. Okay. Continuing. Um, where are we? At the same time, because of uneven capitalist development, new rising imperialist powers emerged alongside the USA, the EU and Japan, seeking to acquire a share of the raw materials, their transport routes, and the markets. This is presented today by the bourgeois media and analysts as a multipolar world, and as the end of the unipolar world. 
The unevenness of the outbreak of the capitalist crisis during this accelerates upheavals in the correlation of capitalist forces. That's an important thing. So 2008 hit some countries harder than others. So hence within the capitalist world, uh, as it said, accelerates upheavals in the correlation of capitalist forces. But this does not make our world a more peaceful or safer place. Correct. As long as the contradiction between capital and labor is not resolved at a national, regional, and global level, as long as the new rising powers are driven by capital's desire for new markets and more raw materials, we will not have radical changes. Yeah, this is elementary. The states that are gaining ground in the international imperialist system cannot play the role which the USSR played in the past because they operate on the basis of additional profit for their own monopolies. This is true for China and cannot be denied just because it uses a red flag and the ruling party has the title communist. In addition, when we focus on the cooperation of BRIC countries or those of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, or the coordination with the foreign ministers of China, India, and Russia, which they have achieved, we should not forget that this is only one aspect of imperialist reality. Behind this, there's the aspect of tough rivalries and contradictions between these powers, e.g. between Russia and China over the energy resources of Central Asia, or Chinese ambition in the Russian Far East, etc. The same is true for the relations between China and India, where aside from the unresolved border question, e.g. in August of 2010, India sent two divisions to the state of Arunachal Pradesh in order to reinforce its border with China. There's also a fierce competition for hegemony in the region of Eastern Asia. It is a characteristic that, as is well known, India's Ministry of Defense held in 2009 and 2010 repeated meetings concerning the modernization of the Chinese armed forces, setting corresponding goals for the armed forces of India. The trend of altering the relations with the USA is developing also within the states of Latin America, with Brazil being in the forefront. Thus, these states seek to strengthen their relations with China, Russia, India, and the EU. Competition and cooperation coexist in the imperialist world, where the interdependence and forging of alliances go hand-in-hand hand with rivalries and counter-alliances. At the same time, all those who consider that China is a, quote, break on the, quote, unipolarity of the USA, ignore the fact that China, in 2001, publicly supported the so-called war on terrorism, which is a complete sham. It was a pretext for the U.S. to just go and invade a whole bunch of countries. Anyway, and the U.N. Security Council Resolution 1373-2001, which institutionalized imperialist aggression under the pretext of terrorism. Of course, the international communist movement moved in an entirely different direction, when at the international meeting of the communist and workers' parties in 2002, with 62 communist parties, it noted that, quote, the events of September 11th also constituted an alibi to launch an unprecedented offensive against the freedoms and rights of the peoples on the pretext of declaring war on terrorism. Correct. Imperialists label as terrorist every resistance movement which struggles against capitalist globalization and the decisions against the interest of the people taken by international organizations like the IMF, World Bank, WTO, European Union, etc. Anti-imperialist movements which struggle against imperialist interventions and wars and against NATO, as well as any social and national liberation movement and struggles against dictatorship and fascist regimes, unquote. 
yeah, that's called a correct stance on the war on terror. The alliance of China with, quote, developing countries. On the 10th of July, 1986, China officially expressed its desire to join GATT, the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs, and on the 11th of December, 2001, it became the 143rd member of the World Trade Organization, which constituted the continuation of GATT. Within the WTO, China highlighted secondary contradictions which exist in the global imperialist system. In his report to the 16th Congress uh, of the Communist Party of China, Jiang Zemin spoke of the, quote, difference in development between the North and South, as well as of the, quote, pressure of economic, scientific, technical, and other supremacy from the developed countries, unquote. According to certain estimations, China constantly seeks to be presented as a representative and leader of the developing countries. Despite the enhancement of China's international position economically, the leadership of China insists on presenting it as a, quote, developing country. This claim is based on three arguments. A, in 2008, GDP per capita in China was only $3,300, the 104th in the world. B, of the 1.3 billion people in China, more than 700 million are farmers. C, industry, agriculture, and the service sector in China constitute 49%, 11%, and 40% respectively of the GDP. While in other countries with a higher level of capitalist development, industry and agriculture have lower percentages. In 2009, GDP increased by 9.5% in industry, by 8.4% in services, and only by 4.2% in agriculture. The rankings of the UN and the OECD are problematic and do not reflect the reality of China. Likewise, the labeling of China as a developing country by its leadership. These phenomena of a, quote, developing capitalist economy are due to the deep unevenness between the eastern and the western part of the country. A more accurate picture would be given by relevant data concerning the eastern part of the country. And of course, what is, the, what is true for capitalism in general applies also for the developed eastern section, the concentration of the means of production in a few hands, and the increase of social inequality. From this standpoint, the alliance of China with other powers, e.g. India, with similar uneven capitalist development, does not place uh, in the same position as very backward societies in Asia and Africa. It does not place it in the same position as very backward societies in Asia and Africa. Nevertheless, in the name of, quote, backwardness, quote, patriotic dreams are created, which are utilized in the effort to entrap the labor movement, the communist parties, other radical forces, which are invited to forget for the present the class struggle and the need to build another society and devote themselves to the job of, quote, strengthening the international position of their countries. The pursuit for, quote, national development is often combined with a selective, quote, anti-imperialism. Look at this. They've got this all laid out, all the things that the U.S. Uh, movement is still stumbling over. They got this all laid out back in 2010. All right. The pursuit for national development by China is often combined with a selective anti-imperialism, which concentrates its fire only on the USA, which it characterizes as an empire and possibly on some of the powerful states from Western Europe. The theory of the so-called, quote, golden billion, the 30 most developed countries which belong to the OECD, operates within this logic, which promotes as the basic defining criterion the per capita consumption of various goods per country. 
At the same time, those who focus excessively on the distinction between developed and developing countries forget that even in the richest capitalist countries, like the USA, there exist phenomena of mass deprivation and poverty among the popular strata. There also exist phenomena of massive enrichment in the poorest countries, maybe even in a more blatant way than in the so-called developed countries. Since the analysis of Marx holds true that, quote, the more productive one country is relative to another in the world market, the higher will be its wages as compared with the other. In England, not only nominal wages, but also real wages are higher than on the continent. The worker eats more meat. He satisfies more needs. This, however, only applies to the industrial worker and not the agricultural laborer. But in proportion to the productivity of the English workers, their wages are not higher than the wages paid in other countries, unquote. If communist forces give up on the slogan of internationalist proletarian solidarity and support the idea of the separation of the world into north-south, or the idea of the golden billion, they will easily fall into the trap of unity with the so-called nationally-oriented capital, that is to say, with the bourgeois class of their countries, or with a section of it, which seeks a better position within the global capitalist system for itself. In that case, as communists, they will have consciously or unconsciously revised the central Leninist thesis concerning imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, which refers to the entire reactionary era of capitalism, and consequently to every capitalist society, no matter their strength in the global market. For that reason, this is one more issue where the stance of China, which seeks to present itself as the leader of the, quote, developing countries, contributes to this disorientation and to the creation of confusion within the, uh, in, uh, to the creation of confusion within the international communist movement, since the leader of this effort is a large country, which is governed by a party which bears the title communist. The so-called inevitable opening up to the global market. The CPC and other forces as well promoted the gradual strengthening of capitalist relations of production as participation in globalization. Quote, Today, in the increasingly globalized world, China cannot develop in isolation from the rest of the world, nor can the world ignore China in the process of achieving prosperity. That's one way to discuss capitalist exploitation, but okay. But the, quote, global market is not something neutral a market in which there is a mutual exchange of products between capitalist and socialist production. The phenomenon of so-called globalization, in the name of which the wage level in advanced capitalism is under attack today, is not new. Indeed, in the Communist Manifesto, there are references to the global market. Quote, the bourgeoisie has, through its exploitation of the world market, given a cosmopolitan character to production and consumption in every country. To the great chagrin of reactionists, it is drawn from under the feet of industry the national ground on which it stood. All old established national industries have been destroyed or are daily being destroyed. They are dislodged by new industries, whose introduction becomes a life and death question for all civilized nations. By industries that no longer work up indigenous raw material, but raw material drawn from the remotest zones. Industries whose products are consumed not only at home but in every quarter of the globe. In place of the old wants, satisfied, with the, satisfied by the production of the country, we find new wants, requiring for their satisfaction the products of distant lands and climes. In place of the old local and national seclusion and self-sufficiency, we have intercourse in every direction, universal interdependence of nations. And as in material, 
so also in intellectual production. The intellectual creations of individual nations become common property. National one-sidedness and narrow-mindedness become more and more impossible, and from the numerous national and local literatures, there arises a world literature." Unquote. Can the participation of China in the international market be considered to be a compulsory exchange of commodities between different economies, which is forced to do so due to the international correlation of forces? No, because we're talking about the export of capital, which is being accumulated in China through capitalist relations of production. It is well known that socialist construction in the USSR was based, above all, on the socialization of the concentrated means of production, on central planning and corresponding economic measures in its international economic relations, like the state monopoly of foreign trade, which was established in April of 1918. Even under the conditions of the NEP, which some like to invoke when referring to contemporary China, the state monopoly became even more important as a bulwark against the increasing capitalist tendencies. Lenin, in his controversy with Bukharin, defended the importance of having a monopoly in foreign trade. And Stalin later noted the necessity for, quote, the economy to be planned in order to safeguard the independence of the people's economy, so that our economy is not transformed into an appendage of the capitalist economy. It depends on us not to become an appendage of the capitalist economy, unquote. Stalin, in his closing speech to the 7th plenary session of the Executive Committee of the Communist International on the 13th of December, 1926, demolished the myth that the USSR was dependent on the global capitalist market because it had economic relations with capitalist countries. He noted the interdependence which existed in these relations and stressed that this type of interdependence is different from the assimilation of a country's economy within the framework of the global capitalist economy. In other words, this is how you do it. Namely, non-assimilation requires central planning, a state monopoly in foreign trade, in the banking system, and the socialization of industry. The reality in China is entirely different from that of the USSR during the NEP. In China, A, there is no monopoly in foreign trade. Thousands of foreign companies that operate in China cover the largest proportion of the Chinese exports, which of course are dependent on their plans based on their profitability, not on a century planned economy. B. 440 private foreign banks operate in China, and they have acquired at least 10% of the shares of the Chinese state banks, and since 2005 there has developed a domestic private banking sector. C. An important percentage of industry is private or privatized in the form of stock companies, while the private sector is estimated to produce 70% of the GDP. D. Chinese legislation, especially in the economic and commercial sector, is fully harmonized, thanks to the assistance of the WTO, with the norms of the global capitalist economy. And last screen. Epilogue. In conclusion, the dominance of capitalist relations in China, which is a fact today, slowly or quickly will lead to a bigger compliance of the political system. This is what I'm saying. Let's say they're still in control now. For how long? Anyway, which is a fact today, slowly or quickly will lead to a bigger compliance of the political system the dominant ideology, and all the elements of the superstructure whose capitalist character will be reflected in its symbols. The intensification of class contradictions will ripen, and so will the need for the revolutionary labor movement to be represented by its own party against capitalist power. I think we're all uh, listening to this on the side of that. So um, there's extensive references in this article. As you can see, there were many footnotes numbered 
this is it goes on and on. I just wanted to uh, include that visual to remind myself to mention that. I'll put a link as usual to the description. I have to get going, but I would like to look at the chat quickly. Um, we're not going to have time for the second article today, but we'll continue this. As I mentioned, I had a third article planned as well. So we'll continue on this topic for a little while because, again, um, the propaganda level understanding that I hear in support of the revisionism, which is not really backed up by solid evidence, and it's just sort of the repeating of the same mantras over and over again, I've just reached a breaking point and I feel like uh, pushing back more. And obviously this is, you know, people are free to uh, engage in discourse and criticism of this, but this is a pretty well-sourced article. Again, from 2010, we will revisit with the next article, an updated perspective from 2020, and uh, we'll keep going. But th this kind of thing has been said for a while. Again, in Black Shirts and Reds, Parenti kind of runs down some of this. I thought that was a pretty detailed analysis. Anyway, let's um, stop in with the chat here for a minute on the way out and just see what else uh, we got going. Where is this article? I'd love to spread it. So just search on the title uh, here. I'll give you the title. Uh, the International Role of China from the Communist Party of Greece. There you go. It'll be in the uh, YouTube video description as well. So, um, yeah, some comments about China owning infrastructure in various countries. And Greece is proof that a country needs to be imperialist to be a social democrat uh, to be a social democracy. China was also helping Nepal's government to squash the Maoists. They also offered India help for squashing their Maoist uh, guerrilla forces. Yet let me just point out um, as well that this article was not written by Maoists or, you know, um, Ultra gets thrown around a lot today. It seems to be increasingly the um, revisionist ML version of like calling people tankies not really engaging with anything. And again, spitting out propaganda level understandings, um, you know, of, of what's actually going on. Uh, I'm happy to have kind of, well, to be moving through that phase at this point. Uh, and hopefully, uh, you know, others, I mean, there were plenty of people before uh, I was that did that. But yeah, let's, um, let's, let's embrace an anti-revisionist line. And again, you know, there's such a thing as anti-revisionist Marxism-Leninism, which is not Maoist per se, which um, holds these kinds of views, just based on a basic understanding of Marxism-Leninism. Richard Wolff surprises me with his uncritical support of China and socialism with Chinese characteristics. Does he really, though, surprise you? Why is that? Um, Richard Wolff, I feel like is more of an anarchist mutualist than he is a Marxist, although he constantly is claiming, 
you know, Marxist analysis. Um, but uh, I don't know. Richard Wolff makes like 120000 a year through Patreon alone. Um, I feel like he'll say anything to just sort of stay in the spotlight. The day that he comes out in favor of anything seriously challenging, I think I, that's when I'll be shocked. Let's put it that way. I mean, he's sort of like very typical bourgeois academic who happens to have like, you know, taken up his subject matter in the realm of like Marxist history or something like that. But, you know, I anyway, we did a series on Richard Wolff, I think, back in 2021. And uh, I'm not a fan. China seems to have a history of every socialist movement, but ours need to go needs to go mindset. Well, let me say about the um, about the thing that they mentioned in here about China early on kind of taking an antagonistic um, stance towards many other socialist efforts, uh, be, seeming to be linked to negotiations with the USA. That's something I think about a lot. Uh, you know, I only have so much time in the day to sort of do readings on all of this, but that is, uh, for me, a sort of uh, research area of interest, especially around Vietnam. And again, it's true. You know, they made some very um, uh, agreeable and correct um, criticisms of USSR opportunism, then turned around and did in some ways far worse. Um, it's also said that the USSR market reforms that destroyed the country in the 80s were inspired by um, the Chinese market reform, reintroduction of capitalism in the late 70s. So, um, yeah, in a way, like, you know, uh, from that perspective, uh, the opportunist and, uh, you know, sliding into social democracy, um, USSR possibly could be said to have stayed closer to the correct line uh, than the, you know, um, Chinese party, which, again, criticized the opportunism correctly, but then went in a different uh, incorrect uh, position. For all the saber-rattling, China and the U.S. seems a little too cozy. That That's something I, I'd really like to follow up with in the future. But anyway, it will have to be the future because today's stream is done. I thank everybody for showing up. And thanks to everybody turning out uh, to comment in the YouTube comments. We will stream again soon, definitely next Wednesday, 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern at twitch.tv slash socialism S4A. If not sooner, sometimes I do a surprise stream, but mostly it's been uh, just the Wednesdays. Thanks again to the patrons. Thanks to everybody else who coordinates research and articles and DMs and uh, really appreciate it. So... We're going to head out and we'll see you in the next video.